fault lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there on Rumble, except in France. We'll get to that later. We're also on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. Also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan, along with the do-rag conservative, the atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Good morning, everybody. It except is France. Thursday, except <laughs> France. France and Macron. Yes. Like we, we'll, we'll get into that in the headlines but I don't know if it's actually taken effect yet or... It's not going to. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But we'll just say that the French are taking are taking demanding, demanding action on Rumble that they remove us, RT, anything Russian. Get rid of it. Sputnik. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get it Get it off Rumble. They are in their feelings that Spooknik is on Rumble. They are in their feelings, and we do not care. And apparently, neither did the CEO of the Rumble. The CEO of Rumble's like, <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't like, you don't want to watch it? Okay, that's cool. I'll just deactivate Rumble in yep. France, basically. That's basically Problem what happened. Problem solved. Problem solved. There, you don't have to look at it. There you go. There you go. But, I mean, that's very sad. If I were the French people, I'd be so upset that my government... Is telling me this is what you're. This is what you're spending time doing. Right. This. I, Forget the energy crisis. Right. Gas prices. I'd be none so of that. mad that my government was worried about what I was watching. Like, mind your business. <laughs> really? And the French like to protest. Like how? Like, right. I'm not saying go out there and protest because of Rumble, but there's a bigger picture involved here, and yes. that's your government telling you what you can or cannot consume. Tell and, your government to mind. France's business. And you know, I would also go on a little further to say that this is emblematic of Russophobia. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I agree with that. Yeah. This is it's just it's racist. You're not saying remove the Chinese, you're not saying remove the Iranians, although now is that I, like I'm giving an them official ideas. like does did someone does someone just kinda use that casual or is that an official like thing, like Russophobia? Oh, it's a real thing. Okay. Russophobia, okay. yeah. Like, well, I mean, you could be phobic of anything. But right, right, right. Russophobia came out of the Cold War. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so that's what I was wondering, yeah. like, the context for the word. Okay. This is real, like, to me, this is Cold War Russophobia, everything. Mm. I mean, we we experienced it here in D.C. when, at the, at the start of the Ukraine conflict, there were Russian-owned, I don't even know if they're owned, but they're Russian-themed businesses yeah. that were vandalized. Rest- restaurants. Restaurants that serve Russian food. Yes. Vandal- vodka that yep. apparently wasn't actually made in Russia. You right. know, they were pouring out vodka. And I know. I, people were thinking that the vodka was like Russian vodka, but it's actually not Russian Right, it just vodka. named something just, Russian-esque. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all that wasted yeah. top all shelf. Yeah, all that good liquor top gone. Top shelf liquor. Oh. Down anyway. the drain, literally. Down the drain, literally. All right, let's head over to some headlines here. People talking about drinking on a (laughs) Thursday morning. All right, let's start off with some domestic news. President Joe Biden addressed the nation last night. I believe he was uh, over here at Union Station. Union Station, yep. Very strange backdrop 
Surely for, was. To be talking with about this topic. all the tents and everything. Right. Yeah. Right. Did he stop by the tents? Yeah. They removed him before he got there. Probably. I went by there yesterday because I, yeah, I take the bus by there. And so they were getting ready for it. So they Did cleaned they really, it up. They cleaned it up? Yeah, of course. They cleaned up the tent city? Yeah. <gasps> That's... I feel some sort of way about that. Yeah. No. So the tents have been gone for a while, but they cleaned up the homeless people that were around there. They swept them up and put them in a container and moved them yep. before the president got to Union Station. All right, I see. Well, last night, we're going to read you an excerpt of what he said. He says, This intimidation, this violence against Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan officials just doing their jobs is the consequence of lies told for power and profit, lies of conspiracy and malice, lies repeated over and over to generate a cycle of anger, hate, vitriol, and even violence. In this moment, we have to confront those lies with the truth. The very future of our nation depends on it. My fellow Americans, we're facing a defining moment, a reflection point, We must, with one overwhelming, unified voice, speak as a country and say, there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America, whether it's directed at Democrats or Republicans. No place, period. No place ever. We have to face this problem. We can't turn away from it, he said. He goes on to say, we can't pretend it's just going to solve itself. There's something else at stake democracy itself. I'm not the only one who sees it. Recent polls have shown an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that our democracy is at risk, that our democracy is under threat. They too see that democracy is on the ballot this year and they're deeply concerned about it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say hashtag projection or gaslighting. You pick. Now, speaking of Congress, U.S. Congressman Paul Gosar's spokesperson, Anthony Foti, told Sputnik that a Congress that the congressman disapproves of the U.S. government being unable to provide funding to better secure the U.S. southern border during record high illegal migration, but is willing to provide Ukraine with tens and tens of billions of dollars in assistance. Mr. Gosar recently invited Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky not to the Capitol, but to his house in Arizona for peace talks to resolve the conflict in Ukraine. Mr. Foti, the spokesman, said this. Americans are told that there was not enough money to build a wall along their own border, but suddenly... $50 billion is magically available to defend Ukraine's border. Congressman Gosar believes that putting Americans first is the best policy. The U.S. lawmakers reportedly want to try to approve an additional, additional $50 billion assistance package for Ukraine before the end of the year following the U.S. midterm elections next week. So... They're waiting to announce this. You see what they're doing here? They're waiting to announce it until after the midterms um, because most of them are probably going to be lame ducks. So they're going to throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks after the midterms next Tuesday. 
Then according to a report, the five largest U.S. defense contractors have resumed their donations to politicians who have endorsed former U.S. President Donald Trump's claims that the November 2020 presidential election was fraudulent. The Pentagon-focused news outlet found that Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics have donated a total of about two million bucks to Republican candidates in the November 2022 midterms who voted against certifying the 2020 election results. Now, after Mr. Trump lost the 2020 vote to his Democratic challenger, Joe Biden, he launched a political movement to, quote, stop the steal, which culminated in the storming of the U.S. Capitol by thousands of his followers. Now, at the time, Congress was meeting to certify those results of the Electoral College, the constitutionally, excuse me, the constitutionally mandated process by which the election results are made official and the peaceful transfer of power is then maintained. So uh, big money going there from Pentagon groups going back towards Republicans. So, you know, you hedge your bets. Then a group of U.S. citizen journalists and lawyers who visited WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he was living in asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy in London served former CIA director Mike Pompeo with a lawsuit alleging the U.S. government spied on them during their visits in a video shared by the Assange Defense Committee. Pretty funny viral video. Now, the guy was waiting in line. I don't know if you saw this, but the guy was waiting in line as if he's there for like a meet and greet with Mike Pompeo. Mm-hmm. He goes over there, oh, Mike, whatever his middle name is, Pompeo. Oh, nice to meet you. Nice. To- You've been served. And he walks away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Face. Totally. <laughs> All right. So Assange, as you know, is wanted by the U.S. government on charges of disclosing classified information and violating the Espionage Act. He took refuge at the Ecuadorian embassy from June 2012 until he was hauled away in April of 2019, after uh, which hearings began for extradition to the U.S. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit, lawsuit which was filed back in August, include attorneys and journalists who met Assange at the embassy. The lawsuit alleges that the visitors were required to surrender their electronic devices to private security personnel before meeting with Assange. There's a lawsuit um, with that security company in Spain going on as well. Private security personnel then copied information from those devices, gave it to the CIA at that time headed by Mike Pompeo without the plaintiffs, I would say the victims' knowledge or the Ecuadorian embassy's knowledge. So the group is suing Pompeo, the CIA, and that private security company Uh, along with the CEO directly. Uh, So that's in Spain. So they've got a lot of lawsuits going on there. Then to international news, Rumble, this is what we were talking about at the top of the hour. They announced they're going to disable access to its service in France after Paris demanded that the video hosting platform remove all Russian news sources. Quote, as part of our mission to restore a free and open internet, We have committed not to move the goalposts on our current policies, the company said in a statement, as well as a tweet from the CEO. Continuing, he says, users with unpopular views are free to access our platform 
on the same terms as our millions of other users. The company also said it challenges the legality of the French government's demands, pledging that the decision to turn off France will, quote, not have a material effect on our business as France represents less than 1% of our users. Then in an effort to tame soaring inflation, the Bank of England, BOE, is expected to raise interest rates, I would say following the U.S., copycats, raise it by 0.75 percentage points, according to media outlets in England. The BOE's eighth in succession hike would be the largest since 1989. It is set to push the base rate to 3% after it was sitting at 0.1% less than a year ago. So this figure is estimated to be the highest level since the global financial crisis in 2008. The Monetary Policy Committee's nine members will unveil the fiscal policy decision on Thursday, today, with the BOE also releasing long-term inflation forecasts. British people are expected to be warned that the cost of living will be much higher than its target of 2%. You don't say. The BOE's forecasts are expected to say that, quote, the economic outlook has deteriorated further. Analysts at Deutsche Bank were cited uh, by British publications. Then peace talks hosted by South Africa have yielded results as the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, reached a tentative agreement Wednesday night. The war has raged on since late 2020 when the TPLF launched an uprising in the Tigray state. African Union chief, the mediator Olesigun Abasanjo, announced Wednesday in Pretoria, that's in South Africa, that the two sides had agreed on a formal, quote, cessation of hostilities in this two-year conflict. Now, the TPLF has agreed to, in quote, orderly and smooth coordinated disarmament adding that other points included restoration of law and order and services, as well as unhindered access to humanitarian supplies. Quote, the eyes of the world will now shift from the talks to implementation. Then the IMF, International Monetary Fund, is of the opinion that high inequity, or excuse me, inequality, and food insecurity in the Western Hemisphere may create conditions for social unrest, according to the IMF Western Hemisphere Department Acting Director, his long titles, Nigel Chalk, speaking on Wednesday. Mr. Chalk said, elevated inequality with greater food insecurity with high energy and food prices create a potential for social unrest. Now, the region is going to face additional challenges in 2023 as economic growth is projected to slow and the situation is expected to worsen. Chalk went on to say restoring price stability has to be a priority. Then this day in history, back in 1906, the International Radio Telegraph Conference in Berlin selects SOS and I can't do this in Morse code, but it's dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. So if ever you're in trouble, triple dot, triple dash, triple dot. Got it? All right. 
That's the distress signal. Internationally recognized SOS if you need help. Triple dot, triple dash, triple dot. And then in 1957, Soviet Union launches Sputnik 2 with space dog Laika aboard, a mostly Siberian husky, making Laika the first animal in space. Then back in 1970, President Richard Nixon promises gradual troop removal from the Vietnam War. That's going to do it. For your headlines this Thursday, November the 3rd, you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. So France, we're going to go back to this topic uh, about France and Rumble. And I need to look into where, like, how far this fight has gotten because I remember the CEO tweeting about it the other day. We'll talk about it on the other side of this break because that's what I'm going to look up during the break. Where it's at now is Emmanuel Macron mad that his channel is going to disappear or <laughs> you mad bro i don't know so let's let's look and see uh don't go anywhere we'll be right back after this break you're listening to fault lines on radio spinning fault lines fault lines welcome back to fault lines on radio sputnik i am manila chan joined with malik abdul uh we were laughing at the top of the hour about Rumble and their dispute with France. And and I get it. For all the Rumblers out there, I appreciate them hanging in. I know, I mean, Rumble's a, a fairly new, you know, YouTube competitor, right? Uh, I was a very early adopter because I thought, oh man, I saw the writing on the wall with them starting to shadow ban and, and, and uh, suppress certain video searches um, years ago. So I would say just before the pandemic began is when I think I signed up for Rumble. Um, And there was nothing to watch yet back then, right? But it was like a little startup company. Google, who or Alphabet rather, who owns YouTube, was trying to sue this little platform company in, in, I don't know where they are in Canada, but let's just say Toronto. Let's just say. Um, But here's big behemoth YouTube. Alphabet suing, trying to shut down Rumble very early on, right? So you have YouTube trying to shut down Rumble, and now you have France trying, trying to, shut, to down shut down Russian channels. Russian channels on Rumble, right? But I don't know if the French were trying to shut down Russian channels entirely off the the platform, or just deplatform it from where the French can see it. Because mm. here, okay, yeah, good point of clarification. So here's my my complaint about that, is if they are trying to do the former, which is remove Sputnik, RT, or any any Russian anything, my complaint is you, let's say it's Emmanuel Macron doing it. I don't know if it, maybe it's somebody in his cabinet. I don't know. I, I don't know what their version of the FCC is. But let's, let's assume the buck stops with Emmanuel Macron, right? You are the president of France. You don't get to tell me, an right. American, what I can or cannot watch. Right. I mean, I don't believe my government should tell me what I can or cannot watch anyways, much less the French government, Mm -hmm. right? So if they're trying to do the former, which is wipe off all Russian media from Rumble, and as if they're standing up for whatever, for everyone in the world, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. That's one pot of silly. And then the second pot of stupid 
is even if you're trying to shut it off just for France, for the French people, that's outrageous. That is the modern day equivalent of book burning. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not with that. Like, let people read and see and decide for themselves right. what they what they like, what they don't like. More information is always better than less. I mean, good grief. We thought that China, uh, the certain platforms were banned there. Well, it seems like uh, France is trying to do a similar thing. Who knows what they're trying to do? But the good thing is that the CEO called it BS. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't seem to be having any intention on acting on, you know. No, he's not being intimidated. No, which and, is a good thing. And he's not colluding with the U.S. government. But, you know, speaking of intimidation, government in I don't case. know if you had the chance to catch Biden's um, press, uh, whatever it was, address yeah. last night. I, could. I saw it in real time, and I cannot tell you. I by the end of it, and I'm everybody knows. I'm well, they pretty, said it was unannounced, right? Like a surprise thing. Well, it's never a surprise. I mean, it was a. We knew it yesterday. Well, we knew when Tuesday that he was going to do it. So okay, it's unannounced. That's fine. But I'm typically, you know, I'm even killed. You know, I'm a very mild person. I do, but I was so livid by the end of the um, speech because so instead of Joe Biden, the president, or as I like to say, the resident of the United (laughs) States, instead of him using his time ahead of midterms to talk about the work that his administration has done around a host of issues, instead of him talking about what he's done around infrastructure, what he's done around the things that he feels as if his White House has done around the economy, all of these various things, Joe Biden decided to get up in Uh, days before a midterm election where he's slated to get (laughs) mollywopped, he's talking about, he literally framed the entire speech around political violence and voter intimidation. This is the message from Biden and Democrats leading up to the midterms, political violence and um, voter intimidation. He started talking about Nancy Pelosi's husband and the attacks from some conservatives on, you know, floating these theories or whatever you may be. And I said this the day that they started um, going after focusing on people like Tucker Carlson and all of this type of stuff because they couldn't say that Republicans in Congress weren't out condemning this. They couldn't name any big, any serious Republican who was co-signing this stuff. They couldn't do that. So what did they have to do? They have to start back talking about political violence. And Joe Biden, once again, is sitting there at the podium talking about (laughs) the soul of America, the same crap that he said around Charlottesville. He continues to do this. Joe Biden, I don't remember Joe Biden talking about the soul of America or political violence when Steve Scalise was shot and could have been Others assassinated on that baseball field in 2017. I don't remember Joe Biden talking about during the Trump administration how you had people like Maxine Waters say, get up in their faces, tell them that they're At not the gasoline wanted. gasoline station. This is what Mac, a member of Congress, a, U, a United States member of Congress was doing this. I don't remember Joe Biden, Barack Obama, who now walks around, Big Barry now walks around talking about how we're being divisive in all of this. I don't remember any of them speaking out against members of the Trump administration like Kirsten, um, the former DHS secretary, Kirsten Nielsen or the 
DHS secretary, Kirsten, I can't think of her um, last name, but she was a DHS, DHS um, secretary under Donald Trump. She, in a restaurant here in Washington, D.C. I'm trying to think now. Yeah, you, Nielsen or something maybe, but you see her at a restaurant. She's being accosted. You have people going in protesting. I didn't see people saying, no, well, you know like, what? Hey, tamp Make, that down. Tamp that down. When Sarah Sanders and her family yeah. were down in Virginia at whatever the name of that restaurant was, and they were just eating. I don't remember Democrats saying, you know what? We need to pull back. Don't I don't remember Joe Biden even saying, and he may have said something eventually, but I don't remember Joe Biden coming out immediately and when that idiot flew from California all the way to D.C., to Maryland, rather, to go to um, Justin Kavanaugh's house. I don't remember Democrats. I don't remember them speaking out against political violence. But now political violence is is an issue. Voter intimidation is an issue. We talked about it on that on this show. The only thing that we know about with voter intimidation is the case in Arizona. And if you look at what's happening in Arizona, yes, they were armed. Yes, there was an injunction, I believe, placed on it where they can't. But like 250 feet. But let's go back 13 years ago when the new Black Panther Party under the Mm. Barack Obama administration were not prosecuted. Mm, Eric, Barack Obama's Department of Justice decided not to prosecute the new Black Panther Party. What were the new Black Panther Party doing? They were outside polling places, um, intimidating voters. There was one of whom even had what they call like a, I think it was like a billy club or a stick or something that he was waving at people as they were coming into the polls. And he was saying, well, he was heard saying, and this is part of the indictment, that um, there was a black man going to be in charge now. That's fine. Department of Justice decided right. not to prosecute that. That's absolutely fine. But I didn't hear. Joe Biden was in. They were headed to the White House at that time. I don't hear them saying, well, you know what? Voter intimidation. So he's literally using this because he has nothing to run on. Right. You can't you can't run on your student loan cancellation. You can't run on Build Back Better Times 2, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. You can't run on gas prices. You can't run on anything. The only thing now you're trying to scare right. people. This is fear-mongering. And what got me so angry about it is because I recognize it because the entire time that I was a Democrat, I felt as if it was just customary. I needed to fear Republicans because they were going to take something away from me. They were going to take some liberty, some right away from me. I needed to fear white people because somehow I live in D.C. where 90 Eight percent of the crimes are committed by black people, but I needed to be concerned about people who rushed into the Capitol on January 6th. This is the sort of gaslighting and fear mongering that the Democratic Party is very successful at. And I call it the race hustling industry. It is the for profit race hustling industry. And Joe Biden, Mr. Jim Crow himself, got himself up there last night. And it was as divisive ahead of a midterm speech that anybody could give. I'm sorry. I felt like I just went on. I, you were on fire. I, 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 I was so. I can see you're passionate about this because it, it, infi- what made, well, it was Biden that pushed you into atomic MAGA territory. You were, because yes. I've always known you to be, you know, fairly, a fairly st- normal, normal, typical right. Republican. Run of the mill. Run of the mill, standard, yeah. old school Republican. After you went from Dem when you flipped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, because your roots were in the Democrat Party, I think you were probably a little more moderate, little, yes. you know, very level-headed. But it was after the Biden speech in Philly yep. 
when he went, uh, when he started talking about um, ultra MAGA or MAGA, you know. Deplor- Did he say deplorables? Is that? No. Well, that, that was, was Hillary Clinton. That was, well, so Joe Biden. No, he start, said threat to. Ex, uh, existential threat, extremist yes. threat, extremist threats yes. and all of that. Conservatives are an extremist threat. And, and he continued America. that on yesterday. He started he was talking about threats to our democracy. This is his message ahead of midterms. Like six, what are we six days out? Threats Five days to out? our democracy. You can't talk about anything. You're the president. You can't talk about. He literally spent no time. And when I say no time, I mean not one minute How long was talking. The speech? Uh, maybe 15 or so minutes. It wasn't a long speech, but he said nothing about why you should vote Democrat. He said nothing. Well, earlier this week, when after Elon took control of Twitter, the White House got fact-checked by by new Twitter about the, when they were trying to brag about Social Security. It was a lie, and I understand for comms, yes. What, what, what (laughs) What Joe Biden should have said is that under the Joe, Joe Biden administration, um, med, um, payments for Medicare have increased or, or Social something. Security. It's Social, for the old people. Right. Social Security has increased. What, what they said, it was being too cute by half. They said under the Joe time, Biden's yeah. leadership. In X amount of years. This is what happened. This is under COLA. Right. It has nothing. This cost is because of, of inflation. Yes. It's and a cost so of living adjustment. What happened is that people started to complain and Twitter <laughs> then uh, Elon Musk, because I, I said Joe Biden's White House meets Elon Musk Twitter. Elon Musk Twitter then added a disclaimer underneath the tweet saying, basically adding context that the yes, reason that yes. the Social Security um, payments went up is because of inflation, cola, which yeah. are tied. And they attach the, the, the cost of living yeah. increase that. It, so it's built in. From SSA.gov. Right. Like it had nothing it to there. do with his leadership. It but just then, had. You know, the White House deleted it last night. And then they deleted it. Ahead of the speech. So yes. maybe it was the day before. So but. they posted disinformation. Because yes. that's what it was. Let's, let's be clear. It was disinformation. It is disinfo. They for sure. bo- posted disinformation. Twitter got a hold of them. Twitter did. Twitter. Elon, uh, Twitterverse. Yes. Twitter 2.0. Twitterverse got hold of them. Then Elon Musk Twitter added that disclaimer, and then the White House deleted it. That is, what is that even, I mean, how often does the White House delete, delete a tweet? A, a tweet. And this is not Joe Biden deleting a tweet Obviously. from his account. This is the White House's official account. Obviously. And, and here's the thing. Before we go to break, as we wrap this up, I thought anything that came from the White House account itself or the president, him or herself, becomes like official record, right? It does. So this deleted tweet. Oh, it's still there. It's still, I mean, obviously you can go back on the time machine and get it, but. Yeah, because I have the screenshot. Right. I mean, that's. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, it still goes on like presidential history. Right. So it's like, why, why delete it? Why not just add a second thread and be like, okay, clarification, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that looks better as a cleanup. And to your point, that is what the January 6th were investigating because there were, there were draft tweets that were never sent by Donald Trump that they were investigating that they used in the January 6th hearing. official record if it's not ever It was a draft tweet, a draft, so, something that they never sent out. Uh, I don't there's I see now the fire in your eyes. Oh my goodness. Why you went atomic maga. And and it's because you spent your whole life as a democrat up until that point. Mm-hmm. And then And I see it. I see it clearly now. Right? <laughs> but, man, 
All right. Uh, we have, we're going to take a quick break. Our friend Jamal Thomas uh, hanging out in Brazil. Uh, we're going to be talking about not only, we know the elections happened in Brazil, but we're going to take a look at, at Latin America more broadly because there's been a big swing to the left all across Latin America. So we're going to talk to JT about that on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines. You are here with Malik Abdul and Manila Chan. On the line, we have the Jamal Thomas, who's having a great time reporting from Brazil. No, Rio. he's not in Brio. He's in Rio. He's in Rio. He is, he's in Rio. But Jamal, are you there on the line? We're looking for some updates and some larger discussions about Latin America move to the left. I'm here on the line, and I was listening to your other conversation. I want to say something about that first. I feel your anger in this, Malik. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is super aggravating to me. When a president comes out and fundamentally misunderstands why the public is angry and cantankerous, meaning if you're going to put your country into a situation where they struggle, where they have difficulties, where the amount they're paying for food increases, and then you're going to lose those people and you're going to create this kind of strife within the context of the population. And if you look at it from a, let's say, just very close to it, you may say, oh, God, those guys are moving to the right. They didn't move to the right for no reason. They moved to the right because the left-wing party that was supposed to deal with their main material needs didn't do their jobs. I mean, when Sanders makes this argument about, hey, people need to have food, people need to have resources, people need to be able to get from point A to point B without having somebody pull money out of their pocket, the more people struggle, the pissed off and more pissed off those people are going to be. And if you have somebody like Trump, no, he wasn't going to do anything about it, but at the very least, he was talking about it, in which case you get people who get very angry at the system and the government that they're in. This is a Mark Frost argument, right? When Mark Frost makes this argument about capitalism only works when people feel like they actually have a hand in the capitalistic system, meaning they feel like everybody is pulling together. And at the point where they don't feel like they're pulling together, those people get antagonistic towards the system itself. That is the exact same thing that is happening in Brazil right now, where you have what? 50% or 49%, give or take, of the population that is very angry. Now, they focus that anger on things that are not necessarily in their best interest, but that doesn't really matter, right? All things being equal, they're angry, and they're looking for ways to feel like they are part of a larger system that they no longer believe they're a part of. Joe Biden's speech didn't touch any of that. In fact, I would make the point of saying Joe Biden's speech, if he was going to bring up threat to democracy, it should have been focused in that angle. That's the angle, not necessarily pointing on this notion of these people or those perps or whatever. Get to the root of it. But again, what's the point of getting to the root of it if you're not going to do anything about it, right? Yeah, I, I feel you on that one, Malik. That speech, I look, if a Democrat can't tell you exactly how they're going to make your lives better. I mean, this is the old kitchen table argument. Is your life better today than it was four years ago? And this is one of those situations where their lives are worse as a direct result of Biden, meaning his geopolitical escapades, grandstanding around the globe has basically been to the detriment of not just the European public, but to the American public, and will be so for the foreseeable future, considering the rate hikes that Jerome Powell is making. Jerome Powell even acknowledged this is hurting the economy. I get that, but it's going to take a while. 
for this to change. So expect more of these in the future. And yeah, this is going to have to be this way for a period of time. He owned up to the fact that it's hurting the economy. But why is Powell doing that? Yeah, you can say elements of that are COVID, but you got to be honest that elements of that are basically Biden not being willing to deal with security guarantees, not filling the minutes agreements, pushing for this Ukraine war, escalating this Ukraine war. Even this notion of getting rid of the strategic oil reserves just in front of the election to try to lower the gas prices, well, we got to pay for that. Who's going to, how much more are you going to pay for gas when you're trying to refill the strategic reserves? You had $31 trillion in debt, and the population itself has nothing to show for that. Meaning, the population is not getting on high speed rails, but they can say, wow, our rails here are amazing. We have the best rails in the world. Maybe we spent $31 trillion, but look at our rails. That, that doesn't exist. JT, they're about to strike, too. Remember, we and I were covering that before I went on my break. And the, the rail workers, they reached a tentative deal. And, you know, you were like, oh, OK, that's, oh, that deal is over with settled. now. And like I said, I said, no, no, JT. You were right. I said, no, 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 no. You were right. I was wrong on that. I was like, well, they said they got a deal. I mean, they had to come to some agreement. I mean, why would they put up steam for the deal? Yeah. Delta pilots, 15,000 of them are on the verge of strike. Their unions have all... Um, unanimously approved a strike if things aren't met. They haven't given a deadline, or at least I don't know it if they did, but that's another thing. So if they do this ahead of the midterm elections, if Delta goes on strike before the midterms, oh, it's over. It's it's yeah. atomic over. <laughs> I am praying for president to stand out to the American public and say, look, we've gotten this wrong. We've allowed a capitalistic system to edge too far in a particular direction that is advantaging some over others. And we need to have a rethink. I hear you. I hear your anger. I hear your frustration. And I am the president that is going to do something about it. And I'm going to listen to your concerns. Meaning a contract with America that's a legitimate contract with America. I don't think that they're not. What you're saying is humility. Do you really believe, do you really believe any politician is going to have humility? Whether they realize it or not, that is the only way out. Yeah, I, I believe Biden has the capacity to articulate that because we've seen him do this before. So it isn't that he's incapable of doing it. No, I think that we've I think that because what we're talking about is more performative than anything else. So if you say I don't what think is it's that? performative, though, I'm not I'm not talking about the sort of performative sense. Yeah, but I'm saying if you're saying what does humility humility looks like, then it's going to be an on air performance of what that oh, actually fake, is. Fake humility. So, you know, he can pretend that, you know, I feel your pain. I feel your, you know. Barack Obama did that well. He, he did that oh, well. See, whether he that, meant no. it. I don't want that. Whether he meant it or yeah, not. I don't want that. I think the big thing for me just on yesterday and before we moved to Latin America, but the thing that the big thing for me on yesterday is that he had an opportunity. And he even talked about during the speech, bringing the country together, we need to unify. But everything about it was divisive. Every single point that he hit was divisive, and it's all by design. This isn't just some one-off. We saw the last speech that he gave. Remember with the red background? That was Dark Brandon. The, Dark Brandon, the, the, yeah. the whole poll tested. They poll tested Ultra MAGA. They paid a consultant firm. For the term. Ultra MAGA yeah. because it, it, test, it poll tested, it focus grouped, yeah. tested well. Right. So this is all by design, this whole existential threat. To our democracy. These words are by the, design. These are by design. So he hasn't, I, I wish he would do the things that you want him to do, Jamal. I, I honestly, as a president of the, you know, I would want any president to do exactly that, especially 
after four years after Donald Trump, where we criticize him for not being able to read the room and lead us, you know, through different crises. We have Joe Biden. He said he don't care. I don't disagree. I don't want fake humility. Mm. I don't want that. I want somebody who just, you know, Jimmy Carter. Do you remember when Jimmy Carter gave that speech where he was talking about America and how, you know, we, we've, you know, went the wrong track and et cetera. And people hated Jimmy Carter for that speech. I love Jimmy Carter for that speech. I thought that speech was dead on. And yeah, they might not necessarily like that dose of reality, but all things being equal, he was willing to give it to them in spite of what they liked or not. He was a one-term president. Fair enough. But that speech was awesome. I don't want fake humility. I don't want a performative thing. I want them to get out there and articulate. Because look, I agree with Joe Biden about the existential stuff. I mean, for God's sake, you had one president who they screamed one um, won an election only with the help of Donald Trump. I mean, with Putin. Basically, we won this election only because of help from a foreign government. Basically, you didn't win it on your own terms. Then you had the other president scream fraud. I don't think people get how undermining that is to the integrity of a country. And for God's sake, how long could that go on with both parties are not respecting the electoral results and the public looks at this as being illegitimate? Meaning Democrats looked at Trump's presidency as illegitimate. Trump for people, what, three-fourths, give or take, looked at Biden as being illegitimate. How many times, I mean, how do you keep a Democratic or a Republic going when your lifeblood of that, the thing that gives legitimacy to it, is conferred through the vote? And you have both political parties basically attacking the very edifice that gives legitimacy to a particular party or president. Well, I tell you, Jamal, so... It is existential. I, so speaking of, speaking of politics... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> let, me, let, let me, wait, 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 one second. Before we get into Brazil, there's breaking news that I want to uh, jump in here for. Uh, Bloomberg, Sky News, other people are starting to report. Uh, it's coming through on my phone. Uh, there has been a shooting at a rally in Pakistan. Imran Khan appears to have been shot. He's wounded. What? His condition right now is unknown. Because uh, the news oh is just coming Oh, my God. Are you serious? Um, so I imagine this is something we might need to investigate further. But Sky News, Bloomberg starting to trickle in. Reports coming out of Pakistan. Imran Khan has reportedly been wounded. Some are saying he's been shot. Uh, there's been gunfire at one of his rallies. So, oh, that is shocking. Wow. wow. Just, I'm sorry to take the oxygen out of the Oh, I need to process that. No, I need to process that. That's rough. Wow. But, I mean, you've seen... Uh, you know, we've had we've had guests out of Pakistan reporting, you know, how he like we have Trump. They have Imran Khan. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that the two are comparable in terms of politics, but, in no, no, terms no, but he is a rock star. Of, he is a rock star. Exactly. Out there. And he's had this nonstop group of like massive, massive groups of protests demanding that he be able to get back on the ballot, because I think the courts out there are like trying to block him from running again. And uh, his argument was it was a coup. Yes. That's his argument. It was yes. a soft coup. Yes. And my thing was like, okay, well, was it a soft coup or was it a situation where people got freaked out? Meaning, is it Pakistan has all sorts of military associations with the United States. They train together, they work together, all that stuff. And so is it possible that the political space of Pakistan was freaked out by how close he was to Russia? Keep in mind, yes. during the invasion, when Russia went into Ukraine, legitimately so, by the way, from my standpoint, justified, he was sitting with Putin. He was, he was like literally in Moscow at the exact same time this was basically taking place. And so you can imagine what America was thinking at the time. 
And you can imagine what some of the members in the military or for that matter, some of the people in the political space that have closer ties to the U.S. was thinking at the time. I mean, it was all sorts of political machinations going on when he was in office. I'm around, you know, trying to keep him in office versus trying to take him out. The court gets involved. All of that stuff is utterly fascinating. That is amazing if he's been shot. He's an ex-PM at this point, but this wouldn't be the first time that a sitting PM has been shot and killed like um, Benazir Bhutto uh, several years back. She was, you know, the lady prime minister. She was shot and killed um, in her caravan uh, during like a parade or something. She was, you know, waving it at guests or not guests, but attendees of the rally through her, the sunroof of her, yeah. her caravan. And uh, somebody shot and killed her from the crowd. So this is not the first time we would have seen political violence um, of this nature in Pakistan. So, uh, but the news is starting to come in. So, uh, we'll hold off on any other assumptions, uh, but it just sounds like so far, uh, Imran Khan has likely been shot. His condition unknown. But yeah, let's let's head over to Latin America. I know that kind of takes the takes the oxygen out of the room, but wow. Um, it's like saying osteoporotic childhood cancer during sex. Oh, it's like okay, it just stops. Oh. Oh, man, like... Lord Jamal, give give us an update of what you're seeing down there. We haven't heard anything, um, really, from... Yeah, quick, quick, quick update protests. on Brazil. Okay. Yeah, there's okay. protests. So, protest is the word of the day. Um, there, was, there wasn't huge news about it yesterday. I guess yesterday was a holiday. It was also a day here. Today, they're definitely coming through. So, we have protesters are calling for military intervention. It's a big thing. There was a collective turnout around 100,000 people gathered in at least 75 cities across Brazil. All 27 state capitals, basically had people protesting. Many of those people were protesting around military bases. You have thousands of um, supporters on Wednesday demanding that the military step in and keep Bolsonaro in power. Others showed up in military installations in Sao Paulo, Santa Cantina, Cantira, um, in the capital of Brazil. You have truckers who still maintain about 150 roadblocks. If you remember, the police said they got rid of, what, 350 or so, give or take. Apparently, there's still 150 left. Um, again, protesting Bolsonaro's loss, despite the fact that the Supreme Court told those people to go home. And like I said, many of them are supporting military intervention. Now, when asked what justifies military intervention, they're using this basically saying Article 142 of the Brazilian Constitution says the military has a role in, quote, guaranteeing constitutional powers, unquote, under the supreme authority of the president. Well, you're not ensuring constitutional powers if you're asking military to overthrow the government. Um, let's see, Marco Mello, he was a retired Supreme Court justice, supporter, by the way, of Bolsonaro, made the point of saying this interpretation is nonsense. It's, quote, nostalgia for an authoritarian regime, unquote. And he made the point of saying the losers have a right to whine. <laughs> but no, the military is not going to overthrow the government. Again, there is no political power for this, like meaning all of the um, vestiges of the legislative and the legal branch have basically given Lula the nod. Bolsonaro has even come out and basically conceded, especially to the, to the justices themselves. So, yeah, the losers have a right to whine, apparently. Um, it hasn't been necessarily violent. There was one case where a car basically drove through the protesters, injuring police and some of the protesters. But again, they haven't necessarily been violent. And again, those on the holidays, so people were basically off, so there were more people who could inflame the protests. Consequences. So, Transport of agricultural products. I'm just going to read this quote. Transportation of agricultural products is down by almost a third at the start of the protests on Monday compared to the previous week. 
Of that, the number of trucks that loaded with soybean have dropped by almost half. Corn fell by 40 percent. Fertilizer fell by 18 percent. Animal feed and refrigerated meat during the destruction have basically slowed. Um, soybean facilities that process soy for animal feed and oil, um, even for cooking and cosmetics, they're also struggling to get their cargoes to port. Orange juice production has come to almost a complete stop as truck drivers are refusing to take the products because they don't necessarily want to deal with the protests. So basically, they're like, look, I'm not taking my shipment into that mess. Basically, so all of those things have dropped. They're concerned that if this keeps up, the stores are going to go empty. You had gas stations that are basically running out of fuel, or for that matter, much longer lines, or for that matter, much higher prices again because of the blockages. Um, you have buses. I think they said 1,500 that weren't able to get from point A to point B or cancellations. Now, Balls and Arrow did come out in a tweet. Um, he gave a video statement. He called for an end to the protest. He says, quote, I know you're upset. I'm just as sad and upset as you are, but we have to keep our heads straight, unquote. Closing roads in Brazil jeopardizes people's right to come and go, unquote. He also made the point of saying, I will make an appeal to you to clear the highways. Now, if you remember in Bolsonaro's speech, his concession speech, I, personally, I'm always a fan of concession speeches. I think they're the most important aspect of the election. You know, the loser the Democratic has all process. of his supporters. I, exactly. It's that part of the process. And it's an important part of the process. But you have all of these people who've been fighting at each other's throats for the year. I've called this guy everything but a child of God, Satanist, communist. He's going to close down the churches. He's going to force people into having sex, etc. Anything that you could think of to throw at your opponent. And then at the end of it, though, you have to come and say, look, it's a democratic process. I understand I call this person all these bad things. I understand that I said all of these horrible things about this person. However, he won. And you need to respect the legitimacy of the, it's the most important part. It's like John Wayne. I didn't support this guy, but I, I hope he does well. He's president. I hope he does well. So he comes out and basically finally appeals, stop. Now, the military has basically this thought that the military may even ask Bolsonaro to be a little bit more stronger in that statement of basically saying, look, go home, stop. You're screwing with the country. So we'll see. Right now, apparently, the protests, as far as I know, Still going on. Hey, Jamal, a question for you. Um, the, well, the, maybe that was the last year. The elections in Chile, Honduras, Peru, Bolivia, um, there were claims. All then, went to the left. Yep, there yes. were claims then that they were, um, Latin America was going to go through another, what they called the pink tide. Um, that pink tide. Yeah, what it is. Yeah, that political it movement that we saw I mean, in the early 2000s. Bolivia, Evo Morales was deposed in a coup. Full-blown coup. Mm -hmm. The man won by 10 points. Can you imagine that? You win an election by 10 points. And people come out and say, oh, that's it's a, the um, OAS, Organization of American States. I had the ability to confront them directly, believe it or not. When I went to um, the Summit of Americas in California, the OAS was given a presentation. And I'm sitting there, and they're like, oh, we are so great. We're so good. We do such good work. And when I got the opportunity to get to the mic, I said, look, how do you guys justify this good work with you're doing with basically working to overthrow evil Morales by calling in the question in the election of a result that he won by 10 points. They looked at me like I was an alien. What the hell is this? Who let him in? Who let him in? I think they looked at you with a, a different adjective in mind, JT. Yes, 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 they did. Um, especially the indigenous woman who was sitting up there on stage and I pointed out to her directly, how are you guys okay with this? Yeah, I was like, how are you guys okay with this? You basically got rid of Evo. And I also made the point in that speech, I was like, 
look, Evo has been amazing to the indigenous community by bringing the community into the political space in a way that was never there prior. Yeah, they looked at me like I lost my mind, but I was absolutely right. A violent fascist takeover of Bolivia, where they were dragging people into the streets, shaving their hair off in the streets and everything else. It was utterly disgusting. So when Arce finally got back to the power, it was somewhat of a rejuvenation of the country itself. Hopefully, they put those people in prison. Some of those people are hiding out in different countries. But still, yes, it's a pink tide. And with Brazil now going to the right under Lula, well, Lula has been talking about taking on hunger, talking about making sure each and every person has a house. He's been talking about the environmental changes that need to take place. But more importantly, international relations. He's already made contact with Maduro. Basically, they had a good phone call together talking about bilateral relations. You've had Colombia, um, Petro, Petro, meeting with, what is it, Venezuela also? Was it Venezuela? No, I'm sorry. Colombia. That, uh, oh, where is it? Where is it? Petro. Colombian president. There it is. Yeah, I was right. Um, Petro from Colombia was meeting with uh, Maduro, again, talking about bilateral relations. Those relations fell apart when Juan Guaido was given the nod by the United States to be a pretend president. <laughs> um, he might as well just call himself emperor of the world, um, Juan Guaido. Um, and those relations basically broke through and then when Colombia had a right-wing president that was basically a puppet of the United States. That's over with. So all of these organizations, Brazil, Colombia, um, like you said, um, Bolivia, Honduras, well, I don't know about Honduras, but those countries Nicaragua. are going to start working with Cuba. Yes, thank Nic you. Nicaragua, yeah, Nicaragua was the other one. Nicaragua has a Sandinista president named Daniel Ortega. Ortega, yeah. All of those countries are now working with this idea of working in unison from an international foreign policy standpoint. And Lula has already made the nod to, yeah, we're going to work with these people. And all things being equal, I mean, even talk of a, a South Af South American or, let's say, Caribbean currency. I mean, they are talking about working in closer coordination as a group in order to kind of deal with the world. And keep in mind, Lula was instrumental in creating BRICS. So the guy who was basically helped create BRICS is now back in power. Well, what is BRICS? BRICS is basically a second economic order from the standpoint of the hege hegemony of the, the West. And now you have other countries, what, Iran, um, Saudi Arabia. Turkey, all of these countries, some of these countries are U.S. allies, close U.S. allies, instrumental to this notion of U.S. maintaining power. Those countries are now trying to get into this organization of BRICS, which is in India, China, South Africa, and Brazil. It is an astonishing time, especially for South America, and not just South America, for the world, because it's unclear what this next, let's say, decade is going to bring with the um, complete destabilization in the politics of Europe. Not to mention poor, colder for the foreseeable future. Not my words, their words. And, you know, with this kind of ascendancy of these, well, you can't even just call it South African. I mean, South American, because Iran is not in South Africa, it's not in South America. Saudi Arabia is not in South America. <laughs> you know, you get what I mean? Like, it's, you're, we're looking at a new international order from a standpoint of an economic focal point of the globe. And it's unclear right now exactly what that means, but it doesn't mean great things for Europe. And the catch becomes, what is the U.S. going to do when it's very clear that Lula is not necessarily going to be a patsy for U.S. interests? Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if, if Lula is going to be like the great peacemaker, because right now there's beef between Nicaragua and Chile, because um, at the UNGA just uh, several weeks ago, 
the UNGA, uh, Daniel Ortega, the Sandinista president of, of Nicaragua, literally the translation from Spanish to English, he literally called Gabriel Boric, the 36-year-old president of Chile, uh, he called him an American lapdog. Whoa. And he called him out at the UNGA. I was like, damn. Like, you know, that Friday clip. That's damn. hardcore. And that's what happened in my head. And I went, wow, he went there? And I was like, wait a minute. But they're both leftists. But I think the problem, the question there is that they're saying that, that Chile is not he's not a true lefty, that he's like an AOC lefty. That's like the equivalent. Oh, I see. That you're, yeah, you're, 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 uh, you got elected to office because you're saying all of these things, but it's not actually true. Uh, JT, we're running out of time real quick. Let me give an update um, with the Pakistan thing. Um, Because according to to NDTV, uh, a couple things, Imran Khan was shot in the leg by a gunman. He is now out of danger. He was in a lorry. Yeah, he was in a lorry bound for Islamabad as part of a road show that began Friday uh, from Lahore. He quickly got moved to another vehicle. The gunman has been arrested, and apparently he acted alone. So everything's okay now. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean, he acted alone? I, I don't know. Lone wolf. Mean? Lone gunman. There was just one shooter. <laughs> that, that's all. Okay. <laughs> Well, good thing he's still not a cricketer. So his leg, if you got to walk with a limp, it adds distinction, right? <laughs> I'm wishing that man well, because I'm sure it's not fun to be shot. Uh, Jamaral Thomas out there in Rio de Janeiro for us in Brazil, uh, talking all the politics happening there. Thank you for that, my friend. Uh, stay safe. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We'll be back right after this. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us on Rumble 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. And we're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on your radio dial. I am the Durag Conservative, the Atomic Nuclear MAGA host, Melik Abdul, in studio with the Vixen of Veritas, the Thrilla in Manila Chan. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. You forgot the pause, Malik. The pause? The Thrilla <laughs> in Manila. Pause. Pause. Chan. Got, got to add the pause in there. The, well, is that because of a pregnant pause? Is it's that a, what it's is a, it? Yeah, the pregnant pause. It's obviously it's for effect. Manila. The effect it's for is effect. the thriller in Manila from from uh, Muhammad Ali. Yes. Thriller in Manila. Yes. Right? You I are that. I couldn't really do the rumble in the jungle a different place. So <laughs> Maybe not work. rumble in the jungle. I, I, I like thriller in Manila a lot. But good. Hear from Jamal on Latin. What's going on down there? And a good, good update on the Pakistan stuff. Yes. Cause and I'm sure that's probably going to continue to come in. Maybe we'll get another update before yeah. we get out the show. I but I mean, that's pretty. Maybe he's just grazed in the leg. Yeah. I mean, you don't you don't hope. I mean, this this fits right in line with like the whole political violence thing we've been mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder what this guy's motive was. Right. Well, because clearly was there was shot. a motive. 
clearly it was a bad shot. Yeah. But thank goodness it was a bad shot. Thank goodness it was a bad shot and that he was shot in the leg and seems like he's going to be okay. So we want that for everybody. Yes. Like we want, love him or hate him, love the Pelosi's or not. I, I hope that Paul Pelosi gets Absolutely. well. I mean, who goes and hits an old man? Like you. A loser. Like uh, evil. Well, and in this case, somebody really crazy too. Yes, literally. Yeah. Literally crazy. Yeah, so, really yeah. mental. Anyone that does that kind of violence, especially as politics as the premise, you are a sandwich short of a picnic. Absolutely. And if you were listening to our first hour, we talked about what I'm going to start with in our domestic news, Joe Biden's speech on yesterday at Union Station here in Washington, D.C. I can say there was a lot of ridicule for Biden hosting the event there, considering the crime um, and the overall reputation of what is a beautiful beautiful building Union Station that is to tell you just how bad the crime is around Union Station, which is steps away from Capitol Hill, meaning Congress. They had to close the Starbucks in Union Station because of the crime. But let's start with some news, domestic news. As I said, U.S. President Joe Biden addressed the nation last night, stating that this intimidation this violence against Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan officials just doing their jobs is the consequence of lies told for power and profit, lies of conspiracy and malice, lies repeated over and over to generate a cycle of anger, hate, vitriol, and violence. In this moment, we have to confront those lies with the truth. The very future of our nation depends on it. My fellow Americans, we're facing a defining moment. A reflection point. We must, with one overwhelming unified voice, speak as a country and say there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America, whether it's directed at Democrats or Republican. We have no place, period. No place. We have to face this problem. Can't turn away from it and pretend it's just going to solve itself. There's something else at stake. Democracy. I'm not the only one who sees it. Recent polls have shown an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that our democracy is at risk, that our democracy is under threat. They too see that democracy is on the ballot this year and they're deeply concerned about it. This is what the president said in his short speech on yesterday. Yes, I wish the Joe Biden would be a little bit more concerned about violence against people like for instance, a sitting Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. More domestic news, U.S. Congressman Paul Gosar, spokesperson Anthony Foti, told Sputnik that the congressman disapproves of the U.S. agreement, U.S. government being unable to provide funding to better secure the U.S. southern border during record high illegal immigration, but willing to provide Ukraine with assistance in the tens of billions of dollars. Gosar recently invited Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to his home state of Arizona for peace talks to resolve the conflict in Ukraine. Quoting Americans are told that there was not enough money to build a wall along with along their own border, but suddenly 50 billion is magically available to defend Ukraine's border. 
Foti said, Congressman, also adding Congressman Gosar, believes that putting Americans first is the best policy. U.S. lawmakers reportedly want to try to approve an additional $50 billion assistance package for Ukraine before the end of the year following the U.S. midterms elections <laughs> on November 8th. Yes, they want to wait until after midterms to send another $50 billion to Ukraine. <laughs> well, Gosar, he does have a point. There, de- there needs to be some sort of peace negotiations coming on, and whoever's willing to do it, clearly the squad is not. They're not interested in it, but who's ever interested in promoting this through their social media channel, use your platform to talk about it, push it over and over again that we should be actually moving towards a solution to Ukraine and um, between Ukraine and Russia, as opposed to just sending billions upon billions of America's money there. More domestic news. According to a report, the five largest U.S. defense contractors have resumed their donations to politicians who have endorsed former president, U.S. former president Donald Trump's claim that the November 2020 U.S. presidential election was fraudulent. The Pentagon-focused news outlet found that Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics have donated a total of nearly $2 million to Republican candidates in the November 2022 elections who voted against certifying the 2020 election results. Probably not that much of a surprise that Republicans get lots of money from the defense industry. Not a surprise at all. Democrats do too, but Republicans definitely do. After Trump lost the 2020 vote to Democratic challenger Joe Biden, he launched a political movement to stop the steal, which culminated in the storming of the U.S. Capitol by thousands of his followers at the time Congress was meeting to certify the results of the electoral vote, college vote, the constitutionally mandated process by which the election results are made official and the peaceful transfer of power maintained. A group of U.S. citizen journalists and lawyers who visited who visited WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he lived under asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy in London served former CIA director Mike Pompeo with a lawsuit alleging the U.S. government spied on them during their visits. A video was shared by the Assange Defense Committee. Assange, wanted by the U.S. government on charges of disclosing classified information and violating the Espionage Act, took refuge at the Ecuadorian embassy from June 2012 until his arrest in April 2019, after which hearings began to extradite him to the United States. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit, which was filed in August, include attorneys and journalists who met with Assange while he lived in the embassy. The lawsuit alleges that the visitors were required to surrender their electronic devices to private security personnel before meeting with Assange. The private security personnel apparently copied information from the devices and gave it to the CIA, then headed by Pompeo without the plaintiffs or the Ecuadorian government's knowledge. According to the lawsuit, the group is suing Pompeo the CIA and the private security company and its CEO. So just to kind of recap that, the U.S. government copied, well, the private security personnel copied information 
of those devices and they gave it to the CIA without the plaintiffs or the Ecuadorian government's knowledge. Wow. Not surprising that this is what our U.S. government is involved in. I mean, keep in mind, didn't didn't they just like was willing to pay someone a million dollars to prove a fake dossier? Yep. That was our FBI. In international news, Rumble has announced that it is going to disable access to a service in France after Paris demanded that the video hosting platform remove Russian news sources. As part of our mission, and I'm quoting here, to restore a free and open internet, we have committed not to move the goalposts on our content policies. The company said in a statement adding that users with unpopular views are free to access our platform on the same terms as our millions of other users. The company also said it challenges the legality of the French government's demands, pledging that the decision to turn off France will not have a material effect on our business, as France represents less than 1% of our users. Essentially, the company is saying, we ain't gonna miss you, bruh. In more news, in, in an effort to tame soaring inflation, the Bank of England, BOE, not BOE is expected to raise interest rates by 0.75 percentage points according to the country's media outlets. The BOE's eighth in secession hike would be the largest since 1999 and is set to push the base rate to 3% after it stood at just 0.1% under a year ago. This figure is estimated to be the highest level since the global financial crisis in 2008. The Monetary Policy Committee's nine members will unveil the fiscal policy decision on Thursday with the BOE also releasing long-term inflation forecasts. British people are expected to be warned that the cost of living will be much higher than its target of 2%. The BOE forecasts are expected to say that the economic outlook has deteriorated further, analysts at Deutsche Bank were cited by publication. Peace talks hosted by South Africa have yielded results as the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, reached a tentative agreement on Wednesday. The war has raged since late 2020 when the TPLF launched an uprising in Tigray State. Tigray State. African Union Chief Mediator, Mediator Olisogun Obosanjo announced Wednesday afternoon in Pretoria that the two sides had agreed on a formal cessation of hostilities in the two-year conflict. The TPLF has agreed to an orderly, smooth, and coordinated disarmament, adding that other points included restoration of law and order and services as well as unhindered access to humanitarian supplies. The eyes of the world will now shift from the talks to the implementation. Obisanjo said. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, is of the opinion that high inequality and food insecurity in the Western Hemisphere may create conditions for social unrest. IMF Western Hemisphere Department Acting Director Nigel Chalk said on Wednesday, quoting, elevated inequality with greater food insecurity with high energy and food prices create a potential for social unrest. The region is going to face additional challenges in 2023 
as economic growth is projected to slow and the situation expected is expected to be worse than it is currently amid runway, runaway inflation. Chalk added, restoring price stability has to be a priority. And on this day in history, 1906, International Radio Telegraph Conference in Berlin selects SOS, triple dot, triple dash, triple dots, distress signal as the worldwide standard for help. And in 1957, Soviet Union launches Sputnik 2 with space dog Laika aboard a mostly Siberian Husky, the first animal in space. It was a mostly Siberian Husky, not full, just mostly. And in 1970, U.S. President Richard Nixon promises gradual troop removal from Vietnam. And these are your headlines for today, Thursday, November 3rd. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. And I'll just add one more thing to the headlines in case you missed it. The last hour uh, about in Pakistan, the news in Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, his convoy was shot at. Uh, that's what we know for sure. The, it, it just happened. So his convoy was shot at. Uh, apparently, he was shot in the leg. He's out of danger. Uh, he was in a convoy, you know, doing what they call a road show. He was en route to Lahore. He got moved to another vehicle. He's safe now. Gunman has been arrested. They say he acted alone. Motive is being investigated. Uh, but I'm sure somebody will say that this is political violence. And it goes hand in hand with President Biden's speech yesterday at Union Station. Yeah. So. Well, but a good, good update, though. I mean, it's good that there was nothing more serious happened. Right. This is serious, but it's good that it's nothing more right. serious happened. And he seems to be okay. He's probably stable and will, is probably expected to survive. Um, we don't know exactly, but some reports are saying it was in the foot. Some are saying it's in the leg. Right. Because a leg injury can be bad. Because mm-hmm. you have a, a big. I mean, if you can, there's your thigh vessel. bone. You could get shot in your femur. Like, near there. Yeah, there's, there's a major artery that runs through your leg. So if you get shot there, that you can bleed to death. But it doesn't sound like that's the case um, so far with Imran Khan. Um, and so we're reporting what we know at the moment. Yes. Um, so no speculation. Things may change, he was as shot. they always do. Right. He was so, shot. He's being transported to hospital. Gunman's been arrested. That's what we know happening out of Pakistan uh, right now. So, yeah, we wish him well. Yeah, absolutely. We wish him well, no matter what your political stripe. Uh, let's let's take a quick break. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna have a second bite at the apple. I think trying to potentially make a phone call. <laughs> I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pitch it just yet. But coming up on the other side, but we're gonna up. have another conversation for our eight fifteen hour. We're yes. our eight fifteen hours so. with our mystery guest. Yes, if we can get the mystery guest. And it may be John. On the horn. It may it be could John. Be, could be John. Yeah. It could be, I don't know, your your mother giving us an update <laughs> about the, the pipes, the pipes, right? <laughs> How are it, the pipes anyway? The, the, actually, so things are uh, things pipes. are um, better in Mississippi. They're able to now drink uh, the, the water safe boil now? water um, is notice. It's gone. But okay. my mother still boils water. 
So Ooh. and she yeah, probably yeah. I don't know will. if I would trust it either. Yeah, she probably will for a while. She's really just updated on her. Um, she gets the bald the. Not the bottled water. The five-gallon big Yeah, 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 yeah. So she's just kind of ordered, started ordering more water. Yeah, I wouldn't trust it either. All right, sit tight. Don't go anywhere. Uh, Fault Lines will be right back after this break. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. Uh, And we are working to get our guest on the line. There's a lot of technical difficulties at the moment. But uh, I feel like today's theme, following Joe Biden's speech yesterday. And now the update. And now Imran Khan is the theme of the day is like political violence. Well, hey, and and since we have a little time to kill, Imran Khan is... is the former prime minister of Pakistan who was ousted with sort of a bloodless coup. Mm. Um, and, and at least that's what he was going around saying. Um, and people often compare that to Trump, you know, saying Trump saying the election was, was fraught with irregularities and that he actually won. I mean, it's not quite the same thing with Imran Khan, but their, I don't know if they call it a national assembly or their their version of Congress okay. effectively said that he, you know, did X, Y, Z wrong, so let's get him out. Okay. And that's what he was, you know, protesting. Mm. And then they were trying to keep him off the, the ticket to run again. And we have seen weeks and weeks and weeks of protests, throngs, I mean, Tens and tens of thousands of protesters taking to the streets like every week Wow! on his behalf. So I don't know. We don't know enough details yet about what happened over there. But, you know. That gives some context of who he is yeah. just for those I mean, who ob- don't know. And obviously, if you didn't know before he was prime minister, he, he was a world-class cricketer probably. They say he's the goat of cricket. Okay. I don't follow cricket. I don't know anything about it. But. You know, it's a big sport in, in a lot of um, the UK's former colonies. That's how it got there, you know, gotcha. got to Pakistan. Cricket is obviously a UK thing. Um, not very big in the States. Okay. So, gotcha. But Imran Khan well, is, some context he's like he is. their Michael Jordan of cricket. Gotcha. So a, another parallel. Gotcha. To Donald Trump, right? Gotcha. Like he was famous for something else and then became a politician and then became wildly popular. Gotcha. Well, Pop- populist. Hope he's, you know, speedy health to yeah. him. Speedy recovery. Yes. But I think we have John on the line. Let me see. Check. I think we do. Yeah, yep. we yes, we do. John. There he is. John Kiriaku, co-host of Political Misfits. He is out there in case you didn't know. He's out in Israel. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, he was out there covering the elections. And as we have seen, is it confirmed now, John? Is is the BB return imminent? Um, for all intents and purposes, it's not confirmed yet, but it's likely to be confirmed tomorrow. Okay. With that said, he's already begun reaching out in order to, uh, to try to form a government. Reaching out to who? <laughs> yeah, that was going to, I said, what does that look reaching like? Reaching out to these, to these right-wing, um, uh, Zionist parties. You know, uh, I was talking to a guy today who, who said that, um, that this Bensevier, this uh, the guy that has nine felony arrests, three mm-hmm. for terrorism and attempted murder and all this stuff, he leads 
he leads uh, this this new uh, ultra right wing party. The rumor is he's going to be made minister of homeland security. Wow! So this is going to be the farthest right wing government Israel has ever had. If if this is true, I got to tell you guys something else that happened today. You know, this is this is just sort of life in Israel. I got up early today because. I'm going to leave late tomorrow night. And there were a couple of sites that I wanted to see. So I set my alarm early, had an early breakfast, and I set out for a couple of really historic churches. I went to the Virgin Mary's tomb and stuff like that. I went to Menachem Begin's grave. So the way I did this, I left my hotel and I went all the way around, uh, all the way around the old city. So I came out uh, on the Mount of Olives and I climbed the Mount of Olives and then came down because there was one specific shop that I want to go to. So I go to something called, um, called Lion's Gate. And by now, I'm li- listen, I'm 58 years old. I'm overweight. I'm huffing and puffing. So I decide to sit on a bench. And I'm about 20 feet away from, uh, from this. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a gate called Iron Gate that's next to Lion's Gate. And it's the gate that's closest to the... Um, to the Dome of the Rock. So I'm sitting there and there's an American woman also sitting on the bench and we're chatting. And all of a sudden we hear this shouting and this guy pulls out a knife and he stabs three policemen right in front of our eyes, stabs three policemen. One of the policemen, as he's being stabbed, pushes the guy down and another shoots him dead. Oh my God. And this, you witnessed this. I was 25 feet away from it. Oh my God. But you know, within 20 minutes, the gate was open. Tourists were walking back and forth. Shops were open. Normal life in Jerusalem. Business as usual. Yeah. It's shocking. But see, this is what everybody was telling me this week about the word security. Security was the most important issue in this election, BB being a close second, but security just means Palestinians. And this is what every Israeli that I talked to said they were afraid was going to happen. Now, in the meantime, this isn't the only thing that, that happened today you know, in, in Israel. There, there were – a Palestinian was killed. Fourteen people were arrested in raids in Nablus. This – police officer was, uh, was patrolling in the West bank and a car ran him over and almost killed him. And then another, uh, policeman shot the the driver dead. Uh, two Jewish men were arrested for suspicion of terrorism for trying to kill, uh, the villagers in the West bank. I mean, this is just normal, the normal daily life in Israel. This is incredible. Like I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I we were first gonna, of all, we're glad you're saying. Yes, we were. We we're going to talk to you about the the growing violence that was happening in East Jerusalem, and it, it's just, yeah, I, I think, yeah, and that's where this took place. This was in East Jerusalem, and and like I said, I'm sitting with this American woman. She's from Brooklyn, and then as it's playing out, she turns to me and she says, "I don't think my brain understands what my eyes are seeing." And I said, "They just killed that guy." And then she got up and just kind of half ran in the opposite direction. But yeah, it was it was shocking. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm talking to, to another American this morning too, 
about this Ben Gavir. You know, I'm I'm actually, you know, as an American, I'm really worried about this. Um, this guy, we need to know more about this guy. His name is Itamar Ben Gavir. He heads this new party, and, and it's got it's it's got a a funny name. It's like Ju- oh, here it is. Uh, Judaism now, right? Judaism now. But this guy has been arrested multiple times for serious crimes, uh, just driving by, doing drive-by shootings in Palestinian villages and just trying to trying to kill people. Um, <coughs> he, he's been arrested for threatening to use um, weapons of mass destruction. It, it's just... I mean, this is not a white collar criminal we're talking about. We're talking about a violent criminal. Yeah, this isn't this isn't the kind of guy who gets arrested at a at a demonstration, let's say. This is a guy who gets arrested for pulling out a machine gun and trying to murder people. So he's out there telling people that he's gonna be the secretary or sorry, the minister of homeland security. And then I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that um that J Street. Uh, wrote a letter of objection today. J Street's kind of a progressive answer to uh, to APAC in Washington. The, they've got offices on on K Street. Um, the American Jewish Committee, uh, the American Jewish Reform Movement. There have been a, a bunch of different organizations that have already sent a letter to Netanyahu saying, "Listen, congratulations, but this guy can't be in your government." So this is going to make the negotiations for. Uh, for um, leadership, very interesting. All that news is just a lot to digest right now. That, Hard to process that. that. I mean, like what you witnessed, like it's already a lot to process with Bibi likely coming back to power, then what you witnessed, and then Bibi talking about Ben Gavir becoming basically the equivalent of Homeland Security. Like that's, that's nuts. That's nuts. A guy that is a violent felon at that. Like, I mean, apparently the Israeli voters don't care if you're, you know, a, an, a criminal and a person indicted. I mean, Bibi obviously hasn't gone to trial about it yet, but he and his wife indicted. But these are white collar crimes. Eh, I can sort of get that. Okay, fine. This guy is a violent felon. Wow. Just wow. <laughs> well, John, I'm going to say this again. Stay safe. While you're out there, we know that the crime has been more rampant in East Jerusalem. Um, just wow. Thank you. Thank you for that update. Uh, John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits. Thank you. Uh, sit tight. We've got our surprise special mystery guest on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. And we have a special guest for you on the line here. Uh, let's bring in our guest, Dr. Kareen Kanizel. She served as an independent federal minister uh, of foreign affairs of Austria. From 2017 to 2019, Dr. Corinne Kneisel is also an analyst. She's an author. She studied law and Arabic at the University of Vienna. She completed her dissertation on the notion of borders in the Middle East. 
uh, via Austrian grants at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, She later studied at Georgetown University in Washington. She's clearly an academic. She was a Fulbright scholar, very impressive woman. Uh, Dr. Kanaisel, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning to Washington. Thank you very much for the invitation. Looking forward. I'm glad we were able to connect with you today. Uh, We have a host of things to talk about, uh, but real briefly, uh, I I wonder your thoughts on the political violence speech that Joe Biden gave, and then today, just the breaking news that Imran Khan's uh, convoy was shot at and he was injured. Yes, I just read about that, yes. What are your thoughts on that? Do you believe that there is growing political violence around the world? Well, when when you look at it in a historic context, I don't think that our contemporary situation is much more violent. And when you compare it, for instance, uh, late 19th century, you had uh, a Russian Tsar who was assassinated, Alexander II. You had uh, an anarchist movement in many countries all across Europe before World War One, And also when we look at the number of uh, members of cabinet who were assassinated, whether it was in France or in Germany in the, the period between World War One and World War Two. Uh, it's it's not to belittle what is happening right now, but I think uh, one should always keep the larger historic picture. And uh, it's it's we're definitely not in the brightest time of history, but uh, there were worse times, maybe. Yes, uh, thank you for those those thoughts uh, and context of of history. Obviously, this is not anything new. If you really look at it, I mean, our own U.S. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated before the public public eyes. Um, yeah, and it's probably more so the ability for the news to, the speed at which that yes. news is actually out there. So we were able to get it. The, instantly. The, with instantly. Imran Khan, yeah. So yeah, that's exactly. actually a very we, good we point. We all read about it while, while I was waiting for being uh, put it on air. I also just saw that Imran Khan during his march there uh, was attacked. And uh, yes, we there, there's, there's uh, physical political violence and there's a lot of verbal violence. What I regret in today's world and what I've observed was, was a lot of, well, I, I, I'm simply worried about it. When I came back to diplomacy three, five years ago as a minister, that we have lost all capacity to look into each other's eyes, to take time and to build trust throughout the conversation. Uh, we read out talking points, speaking notes, whatever you call them, the script for a conversation. And something that has gone lost a Particular in, in in the northwestern hemisphere, it still exists to a certain extent, if I may say, in 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 the Middle East, in 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 the eastern parts. It's take your time and and dedicate interest to your counterpart in a political conversation. And uh, diplomacy has died a silent death over the last few years. Uh, then came um, the pandemic, which uh, condemned us to some sort of Zoom diplomacy, which has nothing to do with with real diplomacy. And we can see and feel it today uh, that um, the vocabulary that is used, the attitude, even by high-ranking government officials, uh, professional diplomats, it has nothing to do with uh, what I would call a, a genuine conversation that can lead to something. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, when absolutely. when when Secretary of State Antony Blinken has his own Twitter feed and he tweets something sometimes very snarky or very nasty at another foreign minister, it's very unbecoming, right? Yeah. Of of a world leader, somebody you know at, at the same level that you are at, to speak in that manner. I feel like that kind of uh, 
descends the conversation for the rest of us. Right. right? And it's a little it's a, it's a little toxic. And Dr. Kanaiso, thank you for joining us. I wanted to ask your thoughts on, well, since I mean you're a wealth of information, but just for our audience out there to understand as we found out, um, I think it was yesterday we found out that Russia has re-entered the grain deal. Can you explain the significance of that for those who don't know this the significance of that particular corridor itself in the Black Sea in yes. the Black Sea yeah, definitely. Well, uh, we, we don't, we are on the radio, <laughs> we're not on TV, so we have to visualize somehow the map. But for the audience, uh, 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 just to give you two, three figures, I don't want to bore you with, with, with too many figures, but uh, we like figures. <laughs> <laughs> yes, while they are facts and figures, Russia and Ukraine both are the, uh, among the top five uh, grain producers and grain exporters, plus sunflower oil, uh, which is used for all kind of uh, for preparing uh, also ready-made uh, plates. So both countries have their place in the uh, in in, also in in supplying not only their own countries but the rest of the world with grain, and. Uh, from the very beginning, there was uh, a constant fear that uh, one of the uh, one of the consequences of the current uh, situation in Ukraine might be an artificial shortage of food, and thereby uh, increasing the, the the famine crisis that we have uh, from all kind of war torn places. But it's also countries which are not currently in a war situation, like Lebanon, for instance, where I'm currently living, which is dependent on grain import because there's not too much, uh, not enough. Of, uh, domestic production, even so, the soil is fertile here, but it's import dependent. And uh, uh, both countries supply to a certain extent the rest of the world with their grain surplus. Now, uh, the Black Sea is currently a theater of war. We have seen uh, attacks, we have seen maritime drones being used recently. There was an attack uh, on, on, on the Russian fleet in Sevastopol a few days ago which triggered uh, this momentum that uh, the Russian leadership said, we move out of the grain deal that had been brokered in July because allegedly uh, Ukrainian forces used this humanitarian corridor that had been created for the transport of uh, the grain vessels for military purposes. So that was the triggering momentum. Now, uh, once again, uh, Turkish diplomacy has stepped into. Uh, President Erdogan rebrokered some sort of understanding, most probably asking all parties involved to refrain from military exercise in that particular area. The Black Sea, the Bosporus, uh, they have a, a traditionally special role to play. Geography is the constant fact of history. You can't change geography. So the Strait of Bosporus, which cross uh, the city of Istanbul, and the Black Sea are simply uh, very important needles. Uh, needle ears, they are, they are, well, they're geostrategic, geostrategic. And to to make sure that these vessels full of grain and sunflower oil, whether they come off from Ukraine or Russia, have the free transit, the the, the free passage to move on uh, across then to the, the Mediterranean, this is essential. It's essential, definitely not only for uh, food supply, but I would also add. Uh, what is important about that uh, grain uh, agreement and uh, the Turkish diplomacy activity and all that, 
at least I would say as an as an distant observer, there is some sort of technical cooperation between Moscow and Kiev, which is very important because um, there are topics you simply will have to, to 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 have some sort of daily technical contact. So it's the ministers of defense, it's uh, it's the maritime authorities that are involved, it's the Turkish authorities who do an excellent work in in permitting something like still really <laughs> true diplomacy happen, and and this is in my eyes it goes far beyond the grain deal as such. It really shows that. On a technical level, there's some sort of communication, and this is very, very important in that uh, entire quagmire. And, and Dr. Kneisel, shifting gears a little bit, but another thing about economics is uh, here stateside, I'm sure you've seen all the news, the, the inflation rate here in the U.S., uh, the cost for food, the, ga- the gasoline prices. There's a major threat, at least here on the East Coast, that we have only 50% of our diesel uh, gasoline in reserves. And there, Joe Biden has obviously chosen as his path of, I would call it non-diplomacy, to buy any Russian gasoline, to write, buy, you know, whether it's a finished product or crude or what have you. He has chosen that path. The American people are paying a very high price. And now this could be very detrimental to the entire economy if 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 our trucks cannot be filled with diesel to deliver food deliver clothing or whatever at the stores this is going to be a major problem for the US what do you make what do you make of the, of Joe Biden's choice by it's not like the Russians chose to stop selling crude to the Americans the Americans chose not to buy it and now America is going to pay the price and is going to suffer what do you think of that uh, President Joe Biden, like many EU g- government officials, unfortunately, have uh, not uh, uh, are not acting according to the fundamentals of market forces, and they are market force country, I assume, which are called supply and demand. The moment you tighten supply by, for instance, as the U.S. president, the U.S. government did. To, to cut off uh, the the, uh, the Russian supply to the U.S. market, uh, you shorten the supply, and when the demand remains the same, the prices go up. So this is the situation. And uh, for anybody who is a little bit into econ- economics, you really don't. It's 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 not rocket science what we are explaining here. Supply and demand; these are the fundamentals, the basics of of market economy. We are not in a planned economy where a certain amount is always available, and according to a bureaucracy, this amount is uh, partitioned. But it's really about uh, clo- uh, a global commodity, and oil is a global commodity. So um, the Russian um, traders and oil producers very quickly moved to other customers. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> yes. oil ever since, ever since it was it it came onto the market after World War One in particular, and and the U.S. was and is again it's back as an important oil and gas producer. But diesel, because you explicitly referred to diesel, which is used in the U.S. in particular for for the drugs and for the transport in many EU countries like France, Germany, Austria, it's also the preferred um, uh, gasoline for for the individual uh, transport. And um, let me uh, refer to, to an anecdote I heard many years ago, already 20 years ago, 
Uh, the last big refineries in the U.S. were constructed when Elvis Presley still gave life, life contracts <laughs> in the 1970s. And, and you might remember the, 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 how should I say, the, the boycotting of, of many municipalities, not in my own backyard. I don't want to have a refinery close by because we want to use our coast for tourism. We don't want to... to it, 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 it's not nice business. I mean, the oil business, uh, it's not anymore as dirty as it used to be 50, 60 years ago. There has been a tremendous advance in in, in, in making it cleaner. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes in, 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 in different cases. But, of course, the refineries are smelly and it's not nice to have them in your own backyard. So what happened over the last decades, uh, it was not only crude oil that came to the shores of uh, of uh, the Mexican Gulf Coast, uh, of New Orleans and so on, but it was uh, the product as such. And diesel is, is, is a highly essential product for, for the transport business. And what you just explained for the U.S. audience, we have a similar situation in France and, uh, and Germany right now. Um, in France, uh, um, there's an additional problem, namely uh, a mass strike movement in many refineries. Uh, people are simply unhappy with the fact that uh, the energy companies, uh, for instance, Total, the, the leading French company, Total Energy, it uh, makes tremendous profits these days uh, thanks to the high oil and gas prices, but it's, it's not uh, materialized in in, in the payment uh, in the pay of of the workers. So, yes, it's all interconnected, and uh, in a world where you artificially create a shortage of a good, you have to expect higher prices. Yes, and and I'm glad you brought up France as well because earlier, and and maybe this is a little bit of a, a fun topic because I like to poke fun at this, but um, it's unclear if this demand or ask came from Emmanuel Macron himself, but France effectively asked Rumble to ban all Russian media from its platform. Instead, Rumble turned around and said, okay, we'll just deplatform the entire country of France. So France can't access Rumble. What, what are your thoughts on especially in Europe, the deplatforming and 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 I I call I liken it to the modern day book burning when you deplatform information. Yeah, yeah, you're fully right with this analogy. I would subscribe, I would uh sign it. Um and um it's um I mean it happened to uh, Russia today, Germany, which already had uh, problems with with all kind of, of, of being confronted with, with the most incredible accusations over the last few years. And uh, you know, f- um l- let me answer your question maybe like this. I'm now living in the Middle East in, in Lebanon, which definitely is 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 a very special country by itself, but it's not only here, it, it's all it also holds true for for Egypt, for Turkey, for all the Gulf Arab countries, I can open here a TV, I can open on the website any radio, TV station, uh, media website I wish to have access to, including uh, Sputnik, uh, Russia Today, uh, TASS, whatever. And this is not any more prob- uh, pr- uh, possible the moment I move to an EU country. Uh, a few it's a few days ago, I, I was for, for three days in Cyprus, and it's just 120 kilometers away from here. <laughs> but uh, I can open all the pages here in Lebanon, an Arab Middle East country with all its uh, problems of war and, and, and uh, the list is 
down here in Lebanon, but there is freedom of speech, and and we have now a much higher degree. I mean, it's 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 a it might sound a bit strange or bizarre, but we have, to my understanding, my eyes now, a much higher degree of freedom of press, freedom of speech, also in the Arab Middle East than inside the European Union countries. And I say that as somebody who has been involved in uh, human rights, freedom of press uh, topics for more than half of my life, because I I studied here in this region uh, in, in, in the mid-1980s, and then the situation was completely inverse. Uh, in most Arab countries, it was forbidden to watch Israeli TV, even so it was just around the corner and, and vice versa. Now here you can watch whatever TV station you want, uh, which is not anymore, which doesn't hold true anymore for the European Union, uh, where we where we were really pampered by by many freedoms, but uh, freedoms have evaporated over the last uh, years, not only over the last ten months, ever since um, the war in Ukraine started, uh, but there is a there is a situation which. Uh, which says a lot about uh, the current uh, state of affairs within the European Union. And, and also a country like France, which uh, which you mentioned in the beginning, where Rumble has been uh, deplatformed. In France, you, you, you had over centuries uh, a kind of political exile of uh, thinkers, uh, uh, political refugees, uh, whether they came from the continent of Africa or the Middle East, uh, people who sought refuge in France, Soviet times, whoever came to France to 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 live in exile, to maybe also sometimes even start a political movement from exile. I mean, just let me name one uh, political exile who then later on became very famous, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who started the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. Where he, was his exile? Where could he preach? Where could he live, so to say, without being touched? Uh, that was Paris. And he came on an Air France flight from Paris to Tehran in 1979, starting the, the Islamic Revolution. Revolution. So uh, 40 years later, you can say there's there's much more freedom of press uh, on the other side of the Mediterranean. Just when you talk to somebody that knows uh, history like this. Yes. It's just because you try to figure out, OK, I have so many questions to ask. Let me try to figure out which one is yes. best. But, but but I do have one just, you know, just if you could just give your thoughts on Netanyahu. Um, as you're in the region. Yeah. I, you know. If you could just, yeah, if you could just give your thoughts on that, and especially as it looks as if he's going to have a governing majority um, in Israel. But if you could just give your thoughts, we'll give you the floor on it. Well, I've given a lot of thought to Mr. Netanyahu. Let me start with maybe a psychological anecdote just for the audience that 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 I often refer to when when discussing Israeli politics. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu's uh, brother, Jonathan Netanyahu, was the the one who who led an Israeli commando in an anti-terrorist uh, um, um, well intervention. Uh, maybe you remember the El Al hijacking of uh, it, it was the, the, the uh, civil uh, airplane El Al. Uh, being hijacked to Ant Abbey in Uganda in the 1970s, and Jonathan Netanyahu was then 33, and and he he was the the leader of that uh, command, and he was killed in that. And I I mentioned that because in those days Benjamin Netanyahu, the brother, and I think he was older than Jonathan, 
uh, lived in the States. Uh, he was more the kind of U.S. businessman. When you hear him, you can you can hear a, a U.S. Uh, uh, American accent. Yes. Uh, he, I mean, he doesn't speak like the average Israeli speaks English. He has a very, very strong U.S. accent because he lived a long part of his life in the U.S. He worked in the U.S. And he was very different from his brother, Jonathan, who was the typical Israeli. And I say I mentioned that because from what I know from the history of these two brothers, Jonathan was the darling of his father. And the old Netanyahu, the father, he only died, imagine, three years ago at the age of 102. <laughs> and uh, the father, so the, the, the day Jonathan was assassinated, met Benjamin Netanyahu had somehow to live with the shadow of his dead brother, of the brother who was somehow a martyr, you know. So uh, I'm not a psycholo psychologist and I don't want to venture into psychology, but I think it's easy to understand that this man was then living with the shadow of the brother who anyway always was the better Israeli, while uh, Benjamin was uh, the Israeli living in the US and having a great time and the other one uh, fighting for his country. So when Netanyahu started his political career uh, in, the, in the late 1990s, uh, my understanding is he always had to be uh, uh, more royal than the king, as you say. You know, he had to to, to prove that he's a stronger, the harder one. And um, when he formed his government with Avigdor Lieberman uh, a few years ago, I think it was like ten years ago. I mean, he's now going to become for the fifth time prime minister. And his father was asked in an interview, was then in his late nineties, and he was asked by the journalist, what do you think about the members of cabinet of your son, Benjamin, who is now going to become prime minister? I think it was for the second time that he became prime minister. And the father answered, imagine, he said, well, you know, my son, Benjamin, always had a tendency to surround himself with strange people. <laughs> that you have to listen as somebody who is in his 60s and your father, uh, and you become prime minister, and your father makes these kind of comments and statements. So the father has passed away at the age of 102. But I think that Benjamin Netanyahu is, is, is fighting for his place in history. You know, he, he wants to have, like many, I mean, this is not, not uh, unique to him, but maybe unique to him is the situation that there is this dead brother, Jonathan, killed in the 1970s as a hero of, of, uh, uh, of, of uh, fighting uh, terrorists. And and Benjamin uh, is still looking for his place where he can really make history as a prime minister. Oh, I, I would say he has certainly made his place in history, uh, in global politics. Uh, that's for certain. And and Dr. Kanaisel, we have you for just a couple more minutes. Um, since you say you are in Lebanon, um, if you can give us a walk down memory lane, um, you, you are an expert in, in Middle East issues, obviously. You studied this. Um, can you walk us down memory lane with the Lebanese president, uh, Michel Aoun, as he retires? What's it like, you know, what was it like being in Lebanon during um, his war of liberation from Syria? And, and walk us through all of that. In, in that case, let us travel back into the late 1980s. Uh, the then president, Amin Shemayel, um, finished his office and handed uh, power competences over uh, to the chief of the army, Michel Aoun, who, who declared in March 1989 war against Syria. Uh, the Syrians had been moving in and out from Lebanon for, for many years. Actually, they 
were installed in 1975-76 by the Arab League as kind of uh, custodians. And uh, this war of uh, liberation against Syria in 1989 led to tremendous bloodshed in Lebanon uh, because it was... Um, it, it it was in, then in those days that the war really became a kind of civil war, a kind of brother war. Before, you had lots of proxies participating. You had uh, the entire Arab world, uh, Iran, everybody was intervening here via their proxies. And then in 1989, I happened to be here in Lebanon. I was teaching uh, in Byblos. And we had checkpoints every 200 meters and the situation was completely surreal because it was a truly inner Christian fighting also that then emerged. And this war, this war of liberation against uh, Syria, as Michel Aoun wanted it to happen, it uh, some perceived him as a kind of little Napoleon Bonaparte uh, in, in Lebanon. And there was a tremendous media hype also around him. Finally, in October 1990, uh, the Syrians moved into Lebanon with the blessing of the international community. And Michel Aoun was evacuated by the French. Uh, he then was in exile in, in southern France for several years. Uh, and the French took care of him in every regard. And uh, hundreds of young people whom I met in the bunker when I paid visit to Michel Aoun then, uh, were killed, were kidnapped, um, jailed, uh, died under unknown circumstances. So uh, this youth movement that had been with him in 1989 was uh, completely broke up. And uh, when Michel Aoun, decades later, came back as president, he was not anymore uh, the incarnation of anti-Syrian forces, of this youth movement. He was a completely different person. So it is a, as if Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, uh, if he had not died in exile, as if he had become all of a sudden. And, and now he's moving out. There's another vacuum in the president's palace, yes, but it's not for the first time in Lebanon. It won't be the end of Lebanon, definitely not. Lebanon will continue, certainly. Dr. Karin Kanizel, thank you so much for making it on the show today. Really appreciate this conversation. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Karin Kanizel, uh, former foreign minister of Austria, folks. Uh, we will be right back for the third and final hour on Fault Lines here on Radio Sputnik. Don't go anywhere. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We are in the third and final hour uh, of the show. What about that? Dr. Corinne Kneisel, she was awesome. Yes. And we were talking yesterday about just the idea of having an academic. Yes. As a politician, you know, academic slash politician. It, it matters having the academic background because it allows, first of all, as part of what you do, you have to unpack. You have yes. to get granular. Context. Yes. And she was able to provide not just current context, but historical context. Like, that is, like, the great thing. Yeah, let let me get over to, <laughs> to our actual intro. The intro. I was, uh, yes. I was just very... We were on a high and we missed the, talking, the like, intro. So much I wanted to ask. And her. our producer said, uh, uh, no intro. Hello, intro. Uh, yes, thank you for that. So, in case you don't know where you actually wandered onto, 
We are live at the Divided States of America. We're in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there on Rumble 105.5 FM, 1390 AM in D.C., Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM, and 104.7 FM on the radio dial. I am the Vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan, along with the do-rag conservative, Atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. This is the show that dares to go there. We just went there. This is Fault Line. I didn't mean to skip over. So we got we got our timing a little off, but that you know that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, that's all right. I was just like, I, there was so much more I could have mm-hmm. picked her brain for. So I hope she comes back. And yes, and, I think we're going to have her back. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I hope we get to talk to her more often because pick her brain. There's yeah. so much happening when when you get to talk to a former politician. Mm-hmm. You get more inside baseball, mm-hmm. and that's important. Mm-hmm. And especially, like you said, a learned person. Yes. And, and, and I can appreciate why Americans elect people like AOC, who's, I'm just a bartender, girl from the Bronx. You know, mm-hmm. I get that. I, I get it. I get why some, there has to be a sprinkle of that. I mean, there's right. 435 of them, you know. You on don't the want them to all be the same. No, you don't want them to all be, you know, someone with a PhD because... You know, that, that presents a whole host of other problems, right? If somebody, everybody is cut from the same cloth. But it's important to have those people. Because here in America, I feel like we often poo-poo on people that have that kind of background. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's something very important to have. Yeah. Because history, the context matters. And we um, don't pay our teachers enough here. We do not. <laughs> we do not pay our teachers enough. That is one thing I think all sides can admit, they may not agree to how to do it, but I think we can admit educators in America are very underpaid. Um, But let's not open that can of worms, Malik, about what kids are learning these days and why, you know, why should we pay them more if the teachers are teaching XYZ? That's a different conversation. Uh, But let's head over to the headlines. But yeah, definitely wanted to give a thank you to Dr. Corinne Kneisel for hanging out with us for a full half hour and letting us pick her brain. All right, over to... Let me let me make this the breaking news out of Pakistan is that if you hadn't heard, the former PM, Imran Khan, uh, he was basically doing a, a city-to-city tour on a, on a convoy. He was shot. The convoy was shot at. He got shot. It's either in the leg or in the foot. Um, so far, it's preliminary reporting. He appears to be in stable condition. He appears to, he'll be okay. Uh, the man that shot him has been arrested. Uh, looks like he acted alone. He's a lone wolf shooter. The investigation is underway for motive and, you know, all of that good stuff. But in any case, Imran Khan, he was shot, expected to survive. Uh, hopefully minor injury. So we will continue to see. Uh, Then we'll head over to domestic news. President Biden has addressed the nation last night, stating, and I'm just going to read a little excerpt from his speech over at Union Station. That's our main uh, train and bus terminal here right next to the Capitol. He said, speaking of political violence, he said, this intimidation, this violence against Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan officials just doing their jobs is the consequence of lies told for power and profit, 
lies of conspiracy and malice, lies repeated over and over to generate a cycle of anger, hate, vitriol, and even violence. In this moment, we have to confront those lies with the truth. The very future of our nation depends on it. My fellow Americans, we're facing a defining moment, a reflection point. We must, with one overwhelming unified voice, speak as a country and say there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America, whether it's directed at Democrats or Republicans, no place, period, no place ever. We have to face this problem. We can't turn away from it. We can't pretend it's just going to solve itself. There's something else at stake, democracy itself. I'm not the only one who sees it. Recent polls have shown an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that our democracy is at risk, that our democracy is under threat. They too see that democracy is on the ballot this year and they're deeply concerned about it. That was uh, just a portion of the president's uh, rather brief remarks at Union Station here in the nation's capital last night. Then U.S. Congressman Paul Gosar's spokesman, Anthony Foti, told Sputnik that the congressman disapproves of the U.S. government being unable to provide funding to better secure the southern border during record high illegal migration, but is willing to provide Ukraine with billions and billions of dollars in assistance. Now, Mr. Gosar recently invited, get this, both President Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky to his, not a formal meeting grounds, to his own home. He invited Zelensky and Putin to his home in Arizona for peace talks to resolve the conflict in Ukraine. Now, the spokesman, Mr. Foti, said, Americans are told that there was not enough money to build a wall along their own border. But suddenly, $50 billion is magically available to defend Ukraine's border. Congressman Gosar believes that putting Americans first is the best policy. So U.S. lawmakers reportedly want to try to approve an additional $50 billion assistance package, assistance package for Ukraine before the end of the year, but following the midterm elections in uh, November 8th, which is next Tuesday. So allegedly there's another spending package meant for Ukraine, but they're waiting to drop that on the American people until after the midterms when I presume many of the people on the Hill will be lame ducks. Then according to a report, the five largest U.S. defense contractors have resumed their donations to politicians who endorsed Donald Trump and his claims of the 2020 uh, results being fraudulent. Now, a a Pentagon-based, or rather Pentagon-focused, I should say, news outlet found that Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics have all donated a grand total of about two million bucks to Republican candidates in the 2022 midterms who voted against certifying the 2020 election results. So you know what happened there with President Trump and the Stop the Steal. And there were several members of Congress who have gone whole hog on Stop the Steal and the election results were fake. The 
defense industry throwing some big money their way. So I would say they're hedging their bets, uh, which is not uncommon here uh, with all the K Street lobbying firms on their behalf. Then a group group of U.S. citizen journalists and lawyers who visited WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange while he was living in asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. They had a guy just serve former CIA director Mike Pompeo. Yes, before he became secretary of state, remember he was the CIA director for a hot minute. So the lawsuit alleges the U.S. government spied on them during their visits. And you can check this out. I think it's it's video that's, it's gone viral now. It was on TikTok, it's on Instagram, it's everywhere. Uh, and just as background, you might recall, Julian Assange is wanted by the U.S. government on charges of uh, disclosing what they say is classified information violating the Espionage Act Julian Assange is not an American citizen. He's an Australian citizen. He was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy from 2012 until 2019 when they dragged him out, literally kicking and screaming, um, took him to jail where he is right now in Belmarsh prison. He's in prison there waiting for extradition here to the U.S. The plaintiffs of that lawsuit filed back in August include attorneys and journalists who were me- who had met with him at the embassy and as it turns out, the private security firm, a Spanish private security firm, had required, you know, when you come in to see Julian Assange, you have to turn over your phone, turn over your devices. And what they did was allegedly copy all the stuff from people's devices and gave it to the CIA, which was then led by Mike Pompeo. The people visiting Assange had no idea this happened to them until all the leaks came out regarding the Spanish security firm. Lawsuits happening against that guy and the CEO as well. Uh, But Mike Pompeo being named specifically in this lawsuit, saying that their civil rights were violated because a lot of these people were American. So there you have it. Uh, Then international news. Rumble has announced it's going to disable access to its service to people in France after Paris demanded the video platform remove all Russian news sources. Quote, As part of our mission to restore a free and open internet, we have committed not to move the goalposts on our current or content policies, rather. Users with unpopular views are free to access our platform on the same terms as our millions of other users. Now, the company also said it's challenging the legality of the French government's demands, pledging that with the decision to turn off France, quote, will not have a material effect on our business as France represents less than 1% of our users. So, yeah, they are not backing down. So good on Rumble. They say they're a free speech platform. Here you have it, putting their money where their mouth is. Then in an effort to tame soaring inflation, speaking of money, the BOE, Bank of England is expected to raise interest rates today by 0.75 percentage points, according to local outlets in the UK. This is the BOE's eighth hike, the largest since 1989, set to push the base rate now to 3%, uh, where it stood at just 0.1% about a year ago. Uh, This figure is estimated to be the highest level since the global financial crisis of 2008. The monetary 
policy committee's nine members will unveil the fiscal policy later today with the BOE also releasing long-term inflation forecasts. British people expected to be warned that the cost of living will be much higher than the target of 2%. So they're trying to tame it and bring it down to 2%, but right now uh, they are seeing double-digit inflation in the UK. Then peace talks hosted by South Africa have yielded results as the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, known as the TPLF, reached a tentative deal on Wednesday. The war that's been going on since 2020 when the TPLF launched an uprising in Tigray state. The African Union chief mediator announced Wednesday afternoon in Pretoria, South Africa, that the two sides had agreed on formal cessation of hostilities over the two-year conflict. The TPLF has agreed to an orderly, smooth, and coordinated disarmament, he said, and a restoration of law and order and services, as well as unhindered access to humanitarian supplies And then he went on to close with the eyes of the world will now shift from the talks to the implementation of that deal. Then the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, is of the opinion that high inequality and food insecurity in the Western Hemisphere may create conditions for social unrest. The... Western Hemisphere Department Acting Director at the IMF, Nigel Chalk, saying Wednesday, quote, elevated inequality with greater food insecurity with high energy and food prices create a potential for social unrest. The region is going to face additional challenges in 2023 as economic growth is projected to slow and the situation is expected to worsen amid runaway inflation. And he says restoring price stability has to be the priority. Then this day in history, back in 1906, the International Radio Telegraph Conference in Berlin, they agreed to use SOS and in Morse code, triple dot, triple dash, triple dot, as the official distress signal recognized worldwide. So if you need help, SOS, that's triple dot, triple dash, triple dot. Then in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 2 with space dog Laika on board, a mostly Siberian husky, not a purebreed, I guess, Uh, mostly Siberian husky, she becomes the first animal to head into space. Then in 1970, President Richard Nixon promises gradual troop withdrawal from Vietnam. And that will do it for your headlines this Thursday, November the 3rd. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, let's take a, a quick break before we come back uh, with our next guest. Who's gonna? We've just here in the headlines. We talked a whole bunch about you know, the IMF, the BOE. Our interest rates just saw a big hike yesterday. I think this was like the sixth or seventh, maybe fifth, sixth, seventh, something like that. Um, we're gonna be talking with our friend Steve Gill, who has also a wealth of knowledge from having worked in the government for a good long many years. He'll break that all down for us and see if Christmas is going to be very, very, very expensive for you to buy, like, I don't know, Legos. Well, I know Legos can be, that's a bad example. Play-Doh. Everything. Everything's going to be expensive for the kids, I think. All right, let's leave that right there. We'll head to a quick break. When we return, we'll be talking with our friend Steve Gill. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. 
lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. Uh, Time now to bring in our next guest, a friend of the show, Mr. Steve Gill. He is an attorney and CEO of Gill Media, which is a Nashville, Tennessee-based public affairs, media, and marketing company. He also just so happened to serve as the director of intergovernmental affairs for the U.S. Trade Representative. Steve Gill, good morning, my friend. How are you today? Good morning, uh, guys, and welcome back, Manila. Thank you, thank you. Much needed rest. <laughs> you know, you raised two boys. Problems while you were gone. We we tried. <laughs> I just couldn't solve all the world's problems while you were gone. Well, but you know, Steve, you you have two boys of your own. You know how rambunctious little boys are, and mine's four. And I'm not a very big. So you're a big, tall, big guy. I'm a small little woman. My four year old comes up past, well past my belly button. And yeah, he's a big kid. Um, and I'm exhausted. You were mentioning Legos and Christmas. I'm just fortunate that my boys are now in their late 20s rather than a four-year-old who lets you find Legos while walking barefoot in the dark yes. house. That, that's where you'll always find Legos with your bare feet. So. That's exactly it. And, and I heard that's painful. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my house is booby-trapped. So anybody, if you try to break in, you will. it is like Home Alone-style booby-trapped with Legos. But Legos to Paul Pelosi. Oh, oh, boy. Oh. Oh, Steve, you went there. But, but we, we could talk about that if we have a little time because we know that you have a lot of, obviously, government experience, and we just rattled off a whole bunch of interest rate hikes. It looks like the Bank of England is... is copying Jerome Powell with a 0.75 hike. I think it's their fifth or sixth of, of the year. We've had our fifth or sixth rate hike yesterday of the year. Um, we're expected to see one more before the end. Talk to us about that. I mean, isn't there any other way to solve this runaway inflation without spiking interest rates? I think it's interesting that you have the Biden administration that denied that inflation was an issue, then then claimed that yeah, it's, it's it's just temporary, and then it was transitory, and and now they're still trying to ignore inflation. You in the president's speech yesterday didn't even mention inflation, rising gas prices, all the other economic concerns in his uh, in his final closing arguments for the midterms, and yet that same day you had the uh, the Fed raising interest rates as you mentioned yet again to try and tamp down the runaway inflation. Uh, Americans are feeling it, and, and unfortunately, the Fed was was slow in acting. Uh, you wouldn't have had to have the continued uh, raising of interest rates if they had addressed uh, in, inflation earlier, uh, when, you, when you could kind of, uh, again, ease the process rather than have to you know provide some sort of a drastic response. Uh, that is the way that you would tend to slow things down, but it has, you know, it has a painful impact as well as as home mortgages uh, are, are going to be felt uh, in, in decline. You've got, I think it was Wells Fargo is is announcing they're going to lay off a, a ton of their mortgage lenders because the, the mortgage applications have slowed dramatically because interest rates have gone up. You're going to see a slowing in the housing market. All of these things create sort of a whipsaw effect. I think I talked with Malik last week that, that you've got this kind of um, – guardrail to guardrail attempt to, to kind of fix the economy rather than kind of staying in the middle of the road because they were too late in addressing uh, 
what was clearly you know, recessionary uh, impact of Biden energy policies and other policies. Yeah. And, and Steve, we're also seeing part of the I know inflation is is a separate thing or at least on the economic level, how they would use to describe um, the price spikes and whatever. I, I know there's a technical term. I'm not an economist. Uh, you worked at the trade representative's uh, office. You had to deal with a lot of this stuff. I mean, part of it is is trade issues as well. None of that has been solved. Well, and, and right now you've seen the uh, dollar to the pound, you know, shift. It's, it's kind of like, you know, a, a teeter-totter. Back in the old days, uh, when a teeter-totter was, you know, on the playground, now I think with, uh, with everybody being so concerned, you can't have teeter-totters on the playground. So maybe a teeter-totter analogy doesn't work. But in the old days, you had this board that, you know, went up and down, and if a fat kid got on one <laughs> board, man, it would drop dramatically. You can't say fat kid anymore. A, a, uh, a, a plus size challenge child that gets on one side of the teeter-totter would, would make it drop dramatically. So you've seen this teeter-totter effect of the dollar to the pound. So it's making things you know better for, you know, Americans that want to go to London right now, you can travel cheaper and stay cheaper, but that's hurting the British economy. And when you're looking globally at, at the way these, uh, these inflation rates, the, the, the costs, the tariffs that are still in effect as well, that, that have an impact on the flow of goods in and out of countries. You know, again, it's, it's, it's like trying to, uh, uh, to squeeze a balloon and, and it, it's going to pop out somewhere. So when, when you're doing these policies, you have to figure that you not only have impact beyond what you're trying to do, but also the doctrine of unintended consequences of even if you're recognizing that doing this is going to have this result, uh, there are also going to be results that you're not intending that are going to come back and slap you upside the head as well. You know what, Steve, and, and speaking of unintended consequences, I don't know if it was unintended because it should have been many people predicted this, but I don't know if you saw the, it was a recent Wall Street Journal rep, um, article talking about the new direction um, or new guidance from the Treasury Department on uh, the ships, the Rus ships, Russian ships with oil. So the initial plan, of course, as we know, I think it was December 5th, the plan was to ban companies you know, from providing maritime services to the shipments of Russian oil. Okay, well, according to the Wall Street Journal, and I'm reading here, the Treasury Department's new guidance states that shipment of Russian oil that are loaded before December 5th and unloaded at their destination by January 19th, 2023, will be exempt from the price cap. Oh, so the, there's a caveat. Yeah, so the, there is a, the plan was ban it December 5th. Right. But then they're now having to go oh. back. You're talking about, and that's why I said, I don't think this was unintended consequences. Anybody should have been able to predict the that dumb. this would happen. What I, the, so the point in me bringing this up is that it speaks to the haphazard way that the Biden administration has run the government, particularly around the economy. This decision to um, put these restrictions and sanctions on Russia. Everybody was just going along to get along. And now the United States, at least from the Treasury Department, they're going back. They're having to kind of backtrack because of what they actually did. So isn't it ironic that the Treasury Department is now saying those ships, okay, well, we won't impact them. And you can, you can, in, anything that you have up until January 19, 2023, bring them on in. But everything outside of that after December 5th is going to be a problem. 
And let's see, let's look at the calendar. It's getting really, really cold. The need for that Russian oil to, to fuel heating in, in the European countries and in the U.S. Uh, I think you look at the calendar, that's, they probably, somebody at the, uh, uh, at the Treasury Department realized, wait a minute, we need that stuff or people are going to freeze to death. So, so let's make it a buy one, get one free Christmas sale to get that stuff in. Uh, you know, it's interesting, I was at, at an uh, event not long ago with uh, a U.S. senator who was pointing out that the, the sanctions that were imposed on Russian energy, combined with the fact that, again, to use the teeter-totter analogy, we, we shut down our energy production, we shut down the Keystone Pipeline, we've savaged the oil and gas industry, reduced the production here, that has raised prices because we can deny economic reality, but the law of supply and demand still kicks into gear. So we put these sanctions on Russia at the same time we uh, diminish our production. Their prices go up. They're making more money uh, thanks to the sanctions uh, that have been imposed. They're still selling to India, to China, to others, but at a higher price uh, because we're literally fueling, no pun intended, their war effort with the sanctions we imposed. And, and I pointed out to the senator that, that not only are we funding the Russian side of the war, we've already sent $65 billion to Ukraine. The Ukrainians are now talking with the Biden administration about getting another $50 billion. We're, we're literally the first country in history to have funded both sides of a war. It's, it's crazy. This is, this is all, I mean, that is madness. And you know, Steve, you know that they are holding off till after the midterms because they're already, the Democrats are already going to be clobbered. And I think for all intents and purposes, it is a red wave. I don't know if it's a tidal tsunami, but a red wave. They're waiting until after the midterms to make that announcement official and public that they're waiting to approve more money to Ukraine. Uh, I mean, that's for obvious, I mean, they're going to be lame ducks, a lot of them, right? So they're not going to worry about it. So they're just going to approve this funding and you know, like teeter off into the darkness somewhere. You know, the most dangerous time in America is not between now and, and the midterm elections, but between the midterm elections and, and the first week in January when we're lame duck. We'll take control of the House. We'll take control of the Senate. All the, all the madness that, uh, that we can see, both from the Biden administration doing more executive orders, from, from the Congress trying to pass as much as they can, as quickly as they can uh, in, the, in the lagging days to to pay off those who, who benefited them to the extent that they did during the election. And I think it's going to be a time that uh, Republicans are, are certainly going to have to hold firm and, and really put the pressure on those who are exiting that, uh, you know, don't leave any surprise gifts for America as you're, that we're going to pay the price for for decades. But that happens every, every cycle when, they're, when you get a bunch of lame ducks. They just throw everything at the wall to see what sticks. And it, it's it's like the outcome doesn't matter for them, Steve. I mean, for example, look at the diesel scarcity. And and and, and I picked the, the guest before you in the last hour, Dr. Corinne Kneisel. She was the former uh, foreign minister of Austria. Uh, we talked about, you know, the, the gasoline crisis that's coming our way, at least for the diesel uh, shortage, right? We are at 50% capacity right now on the East Coast. And that's why I say that's part of Christmas is going to be lean. Well, well, expand it to the do, do the trifecta. So you've been talking about what's happening with diesel. What I think you also talked about, was it the air possible of the airline? The airline strike that's that's about to happen. 15,000 Delta pilots have agreed. Their unions have agreed 
to strike if things aren't, you know, going their way, their demands aren't met within the next couple of days. So add the third to that trifecta, the railroad. The railroad, railroad. as well. So the railway so, oh, strikers. Oh, yeah. So that made... Because there was only a tentative deal reached right. about a month and a half ago yeah. with the rail workers. And you negotiations got, aren't looking too they're good They're not right looking now. pretty there on the rails. They're not looking pretty in the air. And we have Trucker. the trifecta uh, diesel shortage. Whereas, and we have a shortage of, of truckers to begin with. So Joe Biden did not address any of those things last night. None of them, Steve. Guys, I'm I'm usually the one that brings in the gloom and doom, <laughs> making me look like Harry Sunshine, as you point out the truth of, of the trifecta of like the old movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yes. You're exactly right. Between the, the, the rail strike that has been delayed till after the election, between the uh, release of our strategic petroleum reserve to try and keep... Uh, uh, gas prices tamped down a little bit until after the midterm elections between the, the airline strike that, that is looming. It, it is a literal, you know, critical chaos point that is going to come to fruition because of the bad policy decisions that have made been made over the last uh, couple of years. And it's just going to dig, dig the hole deeper. Uh, and again, then you combine is, is Congress going to leave any, you know, really bad policies behind in this lame duck session that will occur uh, you know, we just you know had had Halloween, and and uh, again, you guys are too young to remember back in the old days when people would take a a, a, a brown bag of dog poop, light it on fire, <laughs> these doorstep. But this this Democrat Congress, the House and the Senate, are likely to leave flaming bags of poop that taxpayers will have to pay for for a generation. You think it? it you think it'll be that bad? You think it? There there is no making a U turn with the next you know, with a mostly Republican Congress coming in. I mean, I don't know how close it is uh, for the Senate, but we know uh, on the, in the House, it looks like there will be a red wave. You don't think there's any U-turn, any off-ramp? I think it'll be limited. And again, okay, here I go back to Mr. Gloom and Doom, but, but the bottom line is that I think Republicans will take a significant majority in the House. I think that at the end of the day, they'll have a 52-53 majority in the Senate. Now, keep in mind that that doesn't mean that conservatives will be in the majority in the Senate. You've still got Mitt Romney. You you may still have Lisa Murkowski. You've got uh, you know some others that that tend to to, to uh, stray from actual conservative economic and and policy perspectives. But but you will have, I think, Republican control of the House and the Senate. But that that doesn't give you the ability to actually pass anything because you still got a president that uh, that can veto. Anything that comes across, and there's not going to be a significant enough majority to over, overturn a veto. You're not going to have any Democrats uh, abandoning Biden. You haven't seen it in the last two years. So Republicans will be in position, I think, to stop a lot of bad stuff, but they won't be able to do anything positive because they won't have the numbers and they won't have the White House to be able to, to do something there. Uh, the other big backstop to stop more bad stuff is going to be the Republican attorney general's Across the country, you may see Keith Ellison lose in Minnesota that would add another Republican attorney general. But attorney generals have been blocking uh, through the courts a lot of the Biden executive orders. It takes a while to get that done. But I think that's going to be the other battle spot of stopping Biden's executive orders. Congress, you know, passing stuff that Biden won't go along with. Uh, again, it can stop more bad stuff, but uh, but actually getting a U-turn to to, uh, to turn things around is going to be very difficult. Now, if the Republicans play hardball 
and say, look, we're going to, first of all, take away the 87,000 uh, IRS agencies wanting yes. to use to, uh, to go after Americans. Uh, if they will hold his appointment of any judge, anybody uh, being appointed to serve in his administration, unless the Keystone Pipeline is reopened, unless there is uh, an opportunity to re-engage with the American energy industry, uh, they can play hardball if they have the numbers and if they have the guts to do it. And, and I hope they do, but I'm skeptical. You know what, Steve, a good point that you made about AGs. We don't, because often we talk about what's happening at the Senate, you know, Senate level or essentially the federal level, but the state AGs are playing an important role. If you can um, think about the number, maybe the five or six AGs who filed the lawsuit against the Biden administration over the student loan cancellation, well, a court blocked that. So that, that there there is a benefit to having Republican AGs who are able to focus on this. And what I suspect, and we'll see what happens, um, I, my thoughts were that the Biden administration knew or expected that there would be lawsuits against this and, and more than likely that the courts would ultimately overturn this, this his, his executive order. Well, not overturn the executive order, but essentially block the implementation of his executive order. But Biden knew at the time that he was working on very, very shaky ground. The Trump administration tried a similar thing. Well, they thought about a similar thing during his administration of canceling student debt. And the Trump administration, um, their Office of Special Counsel, I think that's what the name of the um, agency is, they said, they the decision that they said is that the Trump administration could not do it. What the Biden administration did, they came and um, did this under the authority of the HEROES Act, the 2003 HEROES Act, which was passed in response to 9-11. And so he's using that authority of the HEROES Act to do this. And so, yes, there is a benefit to having Republican AGs around the country to push back against this. I agree with you. I don't think that the Republicans will be able to do um, a whole lot. I think it's important even for us in media to kind of educate the public on how this, how Congress actually works. So just because Republicans, even if we get 52, 53, 54 seats, in order to get certain legislation through, you need 60 seats. So I think we need to be cautious. Because of the filibuster. Yes, we need to be mindful when having these discussions because a lot of people, and I say that because that's exactly what's happening now with the Democrats. We're seeing now with the Democrats that a lot of these people saying, well, why didn't they get, you know, voter rights, um, you know, voter laws passed? And why didn't they do certain things around police reform? Well, because the filibuster is there. And they didn't anticipate, nor did they educate Democrats on, well, hey, we may get the Senate, but this filibuster is a whole nother thing. So you actually raise some good points about that. But I don't think that Republicans will go too far. But I do expect their, them to definitely use their investigative authority. They're probably going to launch a, an investigation or um, every other week. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think about that? Certainly targeting Department of Justice and the FBI and the weaponization of our Justice Department yes. uh, against people who disagree politically. And, and Malik, I think you're exactly right that that you know we we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Kirsten Cinema, Senator from Arizona, and Joe Manchin, who flips and flops back and forth, but uh, at least held held firm on not doing away with the filibuster that would have given the Democrats the opportunity to pass stuff with 50 votes plus the uh, tiebreak of Kamala Harris. I think some of the Democrats, at least Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, recognize 
that that uh, what swings one way eventually swings the other in a pendulum. And if you had done away with the filibuster, uh, Republicans, when they regain power and take the White House perhaps in two years, could do things that the Democrats would find abhorrent. And they at least recognized that when they did that with the appointment of, of judges and Supreme Court justices, that it, it changed the dynamic and, and it would do the same thing with uh, with policy as well. So I hope Republicans don't follow that same path, do away with the filibuster so they can start passing things. I think there will be some uh, some reasonable Republicans that will you know push against that kind of uh, move on the Republican side. But there is a limitation to what can be done. It's interesting, though. Have you noticed that the Democrats are already talking about putting the pressure on Republicans that, well, if, if they take control of the House and the Senate, it's all on them to fix all the problems. <laughs> We're not going to have the numbers. They recognize they're about to lose, and they're already trying to lay the traps with their media allies of everything that happens now will be the Republicans' fault. It's like, no, it's still the Democrats controlling the White House and the apparatus of the executive branch that have dug the hole, and we can only, with limited resources, dig out of the hole until we take the White House. And you know what? And you, and you said that about the um, the lower court uh, the filibuster. And I've said it, I've said it even back when Harry Reid was talking about this, and Mitch McConnell and other Republicans were talking about at the time that the political pendulum swings both ways. So when the Democrats decided to end the filibuster for cabinet officials and lower level judicial appointments. I think that was 2012 or 2013. The One of the very first things that Mitch McConnell and the Senate did in 2017, they ended the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. And that's how we got, I think, what Donald Trump got three Supreme Court justices to the Supreme Court. But I'm... I believe that the filibuster should be intact. I do believe that there should be some checks and balances, even though I acknowledge that sometimes my side might lose. But if you're talking about doing what Democrats were proposing, which is eliminating the filibuster, you're talking about political pendulum swings both ways. Yes, Republicans will eventually take power. Republicans will eventually win the White House, whether that's 2024 or 2028. For that side, can you imagine... When it is oh, a majority, boy. you know, even if it it's would a small be a majority, doozy. It, it would, yeah, and there's they no would filibuster. run roughshod over Democrats, and they would yes. rail. The and filib- I would be on television. It works for both. Yes, both. Ways. I would be saying, "I tried to tell you, I tried to tell you." It's it's there as a guardrail. Mm-hmm. But the, I think the people like Biden and many other Democrats actually knew that it wasn't going to pass, and I don't think they supported yeah. it anyway. Yes, yeah, Steve, I hear you. I hear you talking in the background there. Oh, sorry. Well, one one of the things also that that we kind of touched on that, that I want to get back to is that the the student loan forgiveness deal that Biden put out there, knowing it was unconstitutional, knowing it wasn't going to get through the courts, that was just a I'm gonna I'm gonna try to buy some votes with taxpayer dollars. And we seen this week with the announcement that they want to allow Medicaid dollars to be used for purchase of furniture and other stuff. That's illegal, but it is intended to try and create this. Oh, we're gonna give away more stuff to try and buy votes in the in the waning days before uh, the midterm elections. And 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 again, the, the blank checks that they've written over the last six months with, with policies are things we're going to be paying for for a long time. Fortunately, some of them have been stopped. But again, they've diminished our strategic petroleum reserve. It's going to cost us a fortune to, uh, to refill it uh, with the higher prices. Democrats blocked us from refilling the 
Strategic Petroleum Reserve when uh, when oil prices were about $24 a barrel uh, because Trump wanted it, so they were against it. We're now going to have to re- replenish that with, again, tax dollars spending more to get less because of the policies that this administration has followed. We're going to pay the economic price for quite some time. See, there's the doom and gloom that we love about <laughs> you, Steve. <laughs> but, I mean, it's reality. Spot. Here's a bright spot. Uh, because the Supreme Court, uh, both with the Dobbs decision and a few other decisions, is is moving more decision-making to the states, which is what our founders intended, uh, governors and, and state legislators are going to have more impact on policy, and it's going to be different. In some states, you may have uh, California, New York pursuing different policies than, than Texas or, or Iowa, but, but you're going to see more issues pushed to the state level, uh, decided at the state level, so among other things to watch on Tuesday will be the Republicans pick up governor's races country. And it looks like Republicans may pick up three, maybe four other uh, governor's races around the country. That that will change the dynamic, uh, both economically and, and politically. And I think you're going to see if there is a red wave or a red tsunami, that's also going to affect state house and state senate races around the country. You could see bigger majorities in the legislative bodies or a shift to Republicans in legislative bodies around the country that also will will have a, a big impact both in terms of economic policies. You know, you're seeing governors put up uh, huge containers on the border. If the feds won't build the wall, governors are, are, are doing what it takes to strengthen border security, even if Biden and the White House won't do it. So you're going to see, I think, uh, watch Tuesday. Do Republicans pick up more governor's races? Are they the more activist governors like the DeSantis's, the Abbott's? Uh, a Cary Lake in, in Arizona, you're, you're going to see, I think, a big shift in terms of policy being moved to the states. And this red wave could could put uh, more Republicans in power to make those policy decisions. Yeah. And there was a do you think, Steve, this surprise exit by Ben Sass of Nebraska will have any impact on the balance of, um, of power there on the Hill? Because Ben Sass is accepting the job as, I think, president of University Florida, of Florida. Yeah, the uh, the governor, uh, the conservative governor in Nebraska, and I've drawn a blank on his name, is is term limited. Republicans are gonna are gonna take uh, and keep the, uh, the the governor's office in Nebraska in Republican hands. But that term limited governor will likely appoint himself to fill and staff his spot. Uh, so it will it will be a seat in the Senate that moves from you know kind of that Murkowski, Romney, Collins kind of uh, Rhino category into a solid conservative category. He'll have to run in two years uh, for the for the uh, full term for that uh, for that seat. But uh, I think you're going to see at least that Senate seat again move in a more conservative category. Lisa Murkowski has a, a real tough race up in Alaska. Uh, if she loses, you could see another one that uh, Republicans can't count on to actually be a conservative vote uh, move. So the Senate could not only move to where Republicans control it, but it's a more conservative Senate. And then in two years, Mitt Romney is up in Utah. Romney has has not supported his colleague and conservative Mike Lee. He's instead, uh, you know, stayed out of the race to give traction to a quote Republican running as an independent who has has said he's going to caucus with the Democrats. Wow. Romney will be up in two years, and I think he is a dead man walking uh, in in uh, Utah in two years in terms of his Senate seat. Hey, Steve, you mentioned uh, the Senate. What, what do you now? So my thoughts are now because it seems like every couple of days I'm changing my thoughts on um, what our final numbers are going to be on the Republican side for the Senate. But it seems as if I, I, I find it hard to believe that we don't pick up 
Nevada, which is um, Cortez Masto's seat. I think that at, if, if we're just looking at the momentum right now, it seems like that Laxalt is definitely going to be um, Cortez Masto. I'm now thinking, I wasn't thinking this last week, but I'm now thinking that there's a strong possibility that Herschel Walker is going to pull it out. We already know J.D. Vance definitely is going to win. Um, Ron Johnson is definitely going to win. Um, but what do, what 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 other ones are like as far as like the battleground states on the Senate side? Because obviously we're going to win the House. We only need four seats. We're going to win the House. But what 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 particular states are you looking at? Whether we pick up or things that are kind of um, toss up. What states are you looking at as far as Republican pickup for your fifty two or fifty three? I think Herschel Walker has one of the best ads in, in the country when uh, his former coach, Vince Dooley, the head coach at, uh, at Georgia, did an ad, an endorsement ad for Herschel. That was that was carrying a lot of weight. And then Coach Dooley passed away this week. Th- there were throngs of people that turned out to honor Coach Dooley. Uh, at, I mean, literally 100,000-plus. Uh, I think Herschel does win. When, when you've got incumbents that are in the mid-40s, um, they they lose. The, the, if you're not if you're an incumbent and and you've not made the case to get over fifty percent at this stage of the game, those those late deciders are not likely to uh, to decide uh, to go with the with the incumbent. Particularly again when you've got the trend lines, polling is usually about three days behind what's what's happening. So when you look at the trend lines of the directions, you know you're you're going to see better results. You know in five days than you see in the polls right now. And the polls look, look really good for Republicans. It does come down to turnout. It does come down to uh, the election shenanigans we saw two years ago. Some of that has been fixed a bit. But again, in Pennsylvania, they just sent out 259,000 ballots to people who aren't eligible to vote. How many of that is, are we going to see in, in close races around the country? But I think Herschel wins. I think Republicans now have a shot, surprisingly, of picking up New Hampshire uh, and knocking off Maggie Hess. Mm-hmm. Haberman? Emmett Oz was a better candidate. I mean, Fetterman is a disaster. If Oz was a better candidate, that that should not be a close race. But I think that's trending uh, to Republicans to uh, to retaining uh, that seat. Uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Ohio, I think is is set. The other one I would I would would watch that is is uh, has not been on the radar screen, but all of a sudden Democrats are putting money in, and and Republicans are feeling more emboldened. Is Patty Murray, mm-hmm. Senator? Uh, I think Smiley has has a shot there, and uh, that would be a huge pickup. That could put it to fifty four or fifty five Republican seats, which would have been uh, inconceivable just you know six weeks, eight weeks ago. Yeah, and it's coming fast this Tuesday, November November eighth. Are we already? Jeez, it'll be right after uh, we turn the clock back as as. Ahead of Veterans Day weekend. Right. So there we go. We'll we'll have a a postmortem of what happened. I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the coming weeks. Uh, We'll leave that there. Our friend Steve Gill, uh, attorney, CEO of Gill Media, also was the director of intergovernmental affairs at the the representative. I can't talk. (laughs) The the U.S. Trade Representative. Thank you. The U.S. Trade Representative's office. Uh, Steve Gill, thank you so much. I always enjoy your doom and gloom. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Hopefully we'll have more happy days ahead. I hope so. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll take your calls. Uh, I think you might have some things to say about 
this show today. Uh, 202-521-1320. Give us a shout. Let us know what's on your mind. We'll take your calls right after this break. You're listening to Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. Uh, Our lines are open if you want to give us a shout, give us your thoughts. 202-521-1320. The Rumble Room uh, is ablaze with wanting to talk more about the economy, but from probably more of a Richard Wolf type Mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, Because, yes, we do know Steve Gill is a conservative. I don't don't think he hides that. Um, But... There has to be somewhere in the middle, right, that that works for, for both sides. But I think, I think for a lot of people that are progressive-leaning or left-leaning, uh, there's no real representation on the Hill mm-hmm. because all the, the squad turned out to be a fraud. Right. They don't stand by. They, they kowtowed to Nancy Pelosi as soon as she raised her voice. Yeah. As soon as Mama Bear got up there and was like, uh-uh, they all backed down. You know, so to use Jamal's, fascinating phrase. I I think probably the biggest thing that shocked me right now about this entire thing is where we are in the political cycle, the things that we were expecting to be the issues because we thought abortion and maybe some of these other things would be the trending issues. And so we realize now, no, it's really the economy. It's really inflation. It's really crime. And seeing how the number, even for independent women, have now moved to the Republican caucus, a total shift, I think about a 14-point shift since August. 14? Yeah. It's like a 14-point shift since August. Holy cow. Well, a lot of that, you got to remember, are the suburban housewives. So that's who they are. They're sub- so they, they, as they're describing these independent women, really, they're talking about the suburban women vote. And so the suburban women vote moving yeah. to the Republican column. Wow. Yeah. They were turned off by Trump, but yes. uh, but now oh, they're coming back, I guess. Uh, all right, book. we got our first caller, our friend Tarif in NOLA. Good morning, Tarif. Tarif. You were in the Rumble Room the other day. Thank y'all for taking my call. Uh, first, I'd like to say free joint signs. I got two quick comments. The first comment is this. That guy that released that form yesterday about DHS working with Twitter, Twitter lawyers. Lee Fong. Lee Fong. I forgot his name. We, he needs to be subpoenaed. We need to find out. I mean, she needs to be subpoenaed, the lawyer for Twitter. We need to find out who in Twitter, what names was given to them to shadow ban, search ban, ghost ban, and push down on people's threads. Because I'm, I'm still getting pushed down on people's threads. And my, I'm still being ghost ban, shadow ban. I'm one of them. If I jump on Elon Musk's thread and I'm number 10, I'm pushed down to 1,000. You know, my tweet disappeared. And I'm trying to, you know, let people know about contaminated water and Mike E. Bacon. We need to find out those names on that list. Am I part of it? Can a, also, can a GOP sue the DHS for election interference? Because that, that can be brought up with Trump and his lawyers and a GOP, right? That's a good point, Tarif. Yeah, they, they've tried everything. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think they've tried everything. But the system has been so corrupted, Reefy. I mean, even if they tried to sue, at the end of the day, you know, the, the deep state do what the deep state do, right? And, and, and if, if the plan, you know, for all we know, this has been fomenting under Donald Trump, under his nose, right? So there are people outside of party, they, they have a plan in place for whatever reason, right? 
And this this Twitter lady, uh, Vijaya Gade, I think is her name, um, that is, I mean, she's just right there, you know, for, for our very eyes. If you can just look at Lee Fong's um, intrepid reporting, it, it's incredible. Like they don't, she just says right there, like, work with the government, get used to it. Get used to it? What? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, well, fortunately, she has no role at Elon Musk's Twitter, even though she walked away with a huge parachute. Um, a, yeah. Golden like, parachute, mil, mil, tens of millions of dollars. But, Reefy, you know that um, you getting pushed down on, on the replies or whatever to these so called important people, and Elon is going to make people pay $8, and anybody can get verified for $8 a month, apparently. But that is going to further push people down because they, he says the people with the blue checks and the, the $8 a month, your retweets or your replies, or your inboxes will get upped, right? right. It'll you go get, up you higher. You get some priority. Right, you get priority. So I, I don't I don't think, know, Tari, if you may have to, if you don't have the check mark, you may have yeah, to you pay, might have that, to pay, pay that $8. <laughs> I will pay them eight dollars, and from what I understand, they're gonna start doing it. They're gonna start doing it this Monday, which That's is soon before the election. Oh wow! Oh wow! Well, thank you, thank you so much for your comments, Tarif. We always appreciate you. We have another Get brother from the there. south on the line who is brave from Atlanta. Hey, brave out in brother ATL. brave. How are you? Hey, what's going on, guys? So happy to have you back, Manila. Thanks, brave. Nice to hear from you. No doubt. You know, the, the Elon Musk thing, I'm, I'm kind of two miles away. I don't think it's so bad. I mean, I, I'm tired of all that, having to pay all these different streaming fees for everything. So now I have to do that on Twitter as well, which, I mean, you don't have to, it's a choice, right? But um, I, I'm, I'm kind of two miles on it because I, I, um, I'm, I'm more so looking towards what he does in the long term. I don't know that in the end it'll be such a positive thing that, that everybody expects it to be because, you know, he, he has this ultimate goal uh, or ultimate vision of Twitter being an, an everything one-stop shop for everything, you know, and he's already so intertwined and so much. And also, I think one of the top uh, contractors for, um, for, for the government, with the government, I mean, I know a lot of people look at it as far as the whole, um, you know, stopping all the blockage of conservative views and things like that, and all the censorship that we've seen from the left. But I just don't know. And in, in, in that, in that, it's cool. Yeah, it's fun. I can't wait for that. But in the long term, I don't know that it's going to be the uh, godsend that everybody thinks is, thinks is or envisions for it at this point. Yeah, I don't think he's, Elon Musk is like the alpha or the omega on Twitter. I don't think we're going to see substantive change um, come to the platform. Although I did try to, even though I'm shadow banned, I still try to pitch an idea out to Elon that he should really counter uh, YouTube by hosting um, live feeds of, let's say, banned news outlets. Yeah, now that's that's a good turn. I, I think I, I think I did. Yeah, see something about him saying allowing him to do more um, streaming and stuff like that on the platform. That that would be great. Um, I actually called in to bring up to you guys, Brianna Joy Gray. Mm-hmm. I kind of still follow her. I I I I, I, I have an affinity for her a little bit. She did an interview earlier this week uh, with uh, Joe. Sin- What's his name? Cincerani. Cincerani. Oh, the Democrat. Yeah, I saw that. Still crazy. Yeah, fascist. He must have had a, a, a Orwellian 1984 T-shirt on. Um, that interview, man, the the world that he 
that they are in, not not Bree, she did a pretty good job. I, I've been very critical of her, but she she did a very good job in that one. But the uh, that world that he is in and those like-minded people that are in Washington Democratic Party or whoever you want to call them, that's scary. But up to this point, I felt like, you know, they was just, they're, 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 to- they're towing the line. They know that um, the empire game is in, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, they don't really believe it. But that dude believed that. <laughs> lying to himself. That's scary. Yeah. Oh, well. Sometimes sometimes they really believe it. Sometimes they convince us they really believe it. Uh, we'll leave that there, Brave. We're out of time. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Uh, thank you to all the rumblers out there, all the listeners on radio. Thank you, producers, our engineer. Thank you, Malik Abdul, uh, for filling in. It's been a fun week. We got one more day to go. Uh, you've been listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you all for being with us. We'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye. Fault Lines. <laughs>